The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Elan School. Did you have it rough in high school? Did you have to deal with bullies? Get beat up? Get made fun of? Called names? Have to deal with clicky cool kid crowds that made you feel alone? Like a loser? Did a particular teacher have it out for you? Even if you had it real, real bad. You probably did not have it anywhere near as bad as all of the kids who went to a lawn school, how they had it. I don't think I'd be alive today if I hadn't been sent there, but I have nightmares to this day about it, said Sarah Levesque, who was sent to a lawn by her parents in 1996 at the age of 14 for two years. I wake up crying at least once a week, she says. A lawn saved my life, but I feel haunted by it. The Elan school may have saved lives, but at what cost? It certainly destroyed some lives and even took some both directly and indirectly. Founded in 1974 by a man named Joe Ritchie, the Elan School was supposed to be someplace where you could send your troubled teen so they could become rehabilitated and get put on the right track. But in reality, it was a cruel and chaotic nightmare where students were constantly being pressured to confess to things they'd done wrong, called guilts, which often weren't things that were wrong. Having a crush on someone was a guilt. Smiling too much or not enough were guilts. At Elan, you'd be pressured to share your deepest, darkest secrets. Then those secrets would be used against you. The administration pitted student against student in insane psychological mind games, even pitted them against each other physically. And all this was perfectly legal, all considered healthy rehab. And the Elan school wouldn't close until 2011. And none of the administrators involved have ever been brought to any kind of justice. This is such a strange story. There's so much to it. Four-minute lunches, menial labor, having feces dumped on your head, having to wear a literal dunce cap, something called the ring. What kind of person founds a place so horrible? What kind of person works there? Why would parents ever send their kids to a place like this? What terrifying tactics did the Elan School inflict on children as young as 12? What other rehabilitation centers across the country used or still use similar behavior modification methods? How is a strange narcotics rehab program called Synanon that morphed into a cult behind a lot of this? 
All this and more on today's true crime, Big Brother is watching, not a cult, but still pretty much a cult edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, motherfuckers. That's right, coming in hot today. Uh, Hell Nimrod, Hell Lucifina, Praiseable Jangles, Glory Be to Triple M, recording in the Suck Dungeon out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, as almost always, where the sun is out right now, and it feels so good. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, chaser of curiosity, uh, Walker, Texas dad tracker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Interesting show today. And stick around for the Time Sucker updates at the end. A lot of differing opinions about how I approached uh, this past week's topic of black... Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I'm totally blanking on it right now. Black, black, white, it's black water. Okay. I started to say it. I didn't have it written in my notes. I'm like, is that, is that right? It sure is. Um, a lot of different opinions about what I got right, what I got wrong. Uh, and I love it. A lot of great minds in the cult of the curious with a lot of different perspectives. Uh, hopefully by the time you hear this, um, our private Facebook group, cult of the curious is out of Facebook prison. Gotta mention that. We got zucked again. I know this is redundant for you Patreon space lizards since I already addressed this on the secret suck, but worth addressing here as well. Uh, I won't go into the same depth here today, but Facebook has chosen to crack way, way down on content lately. It feels as questionable. As a free speech advocate, I don't like that, but as a run your business, how you see fit advocate, uh, I, I do have to respect it. Hate it and respect it. Not my business. Feels like Zuck and co have caved too much to cancel culture, witch hunters, in my opinion, but that's unfortunately the world we live in now. God forbid some sensitive soul who chooses to enter a private social media group uh, sees content that triggers them. Uh, we've explored building uh, out our own social media interface on the app. Uh, we are expanding and rebranding the app this year, but it would literally cost tens of millions of dollars, I'm not even exaggerating, uh, to build and maintain something that works as well as Facebook does. Uh, they have an army of programmers. Uh, we're looking into alternative platforms. Some with deep pockets will build out a market disruptor to Facebook eventually that is uncensored and also doesn't fill your feed with nonstop political extreme, like extreme political posts. And when that happens, we'll start a new group there. In the meantime, I know how much the cult of the curious means to many of you. We are working with Facebook, their thought police, uh, to clean up our site. We'll need to create some kind of pin post breaking down what the new rules are once we hopefully get it back. If they do shut the group down, we will launch a new group with a very similar name soon and just, you know, try to keep popping back up. Sorry for the headache. Not a lot we can do. They keep changing the rules on us. So stay tuned uh, on what's going on with the Cult of the Curious. In the meantime, we still have Discord, Instagram, the regular Timesook Facebook page. Uh, may Lucifina seduce the Zuck into chilling the fuck out a bit. Uh, super sweet beach dreaming long sleeve Bad Magic Timesuck tea now in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Old Zuckerberg can't suspend our store. Thank God. The shirt looks incredible. Getting pumped for spring. Well done, Logan. And last thing before today's story time. Uh, launching a fun new Timesuck app feature we're very proud of. Uh, the Reverend Doctor been overseeing Bit Elixir with this for a while. The Order of the Suck, Society of the Understanding of Critical Knowledge, ex quo uberbus. We are inviting time suckers to head to badmagicmerch.com. Uh, starting March 15th, sign up to receive one of our Time Suck Freemason type stickers. They'll cost you five bucks. They just cover shipping and handling. We make nothing on these. Uh, then you can put it up in your business so fellow meat sacks can come support your business. Stickers are only going to time suckers who own a business, please, and or work in a business. That would be cool with placing the marking sticker outside the business. The ideal location is outside, above the front door, uh, on a front window, somewhere very visible. Uh, each business is eligible to buy one sticker for their business. If you have multiple locations, please contact Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. We'll sort it out with you. 
Once you receive your sticker, stick it in a visible location, email a picture of where you placed your sticker to bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com with order of the suck as the subject line. In this email, you must also include the name of your business, physical address, phone number, and a short description of what your business offers. And we put that information in the app. The idea is simple. Time suckers can open the Time Suck app, visit order of the suck uh, establishments. There'll be a little tab for them and help support those who support the suck. Be sure and update your app on or after the 15th so you can see the first round of participants. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, Again, Order the Suck stickers officially become available on March 15th at badmagicmerch.com. If you're a business owner or work someplace that supports Time Suck, make a reminder now. Make sure you get your Order of the Suck sticker. Uh, Support those who support the suck with Order of the Suck. Really excited to get this out with the economy finally opening up uh, more and more across the country. Small businesses need as much support as we can give them right now. All right. Excited about that. Excited about today's show. Uh, Bingo, bango. Let's get into it. For this week's episode, we dive into the what the shit world of the Elan School. Not necessarily a cult, but an institution that sure as hell operated a lot like a cult on a lot of levels. Elan student slash prisoners were forced to comply with draconian, often arbitrary, sometimes downright absurd, asinine, contradictory rules, like how you shouldn't smile too much, but you also should not smile. And when they broke bullshit rules like that, uh, they faced punishments that went from strict to corporal to abusive to just fucking cruel and dangerous. Failure to comply could lead to timeouts in the corner that might last for literally months to public humiliation, like being forced to wear degrading costumes uh, or getting your ass beat raw with a paddle by other students to getting punched in the fucking face, quite literally and repeatedly by other students uh, to getting literal shit dumped on you. All this while being aggressively verbally abused, all in the name of therapy, developed and carried out by people with uh, little to literally no psychological education, no therapeutic training. All this was carried out in an incredibly expensive teen rehab center that was more of a communal torture chamber than it was a psychiatric treatment facility. The abuse you'd receive at Elan was curated by administrators and then largely carried out by your peers. And to get out of a lawn, you'd have to become an abuser as well. It's so fucked up on so many levels. To be properly rehabilitated, you had to play the role of prison guard, essentially, in a sick version of the Stanford prison experiment in the middle of nowhere, Maine, that was the Elan School. What a tale we have for you today. Let's dig into this all-too-recent modern madness. To understand how anyone could allow the Elan School to ever open its nuthouse doors, We need to first look at what it was like to be a teenager in America in the late 70s, when the Elan School first opened, when parents thought Elan was the place that could save their troubled teen. After that, we'll walk through a little bit of history regarding how we adults have viewed children over the years, how notions of how to raise them and discipline them have changed oh so much over the years, Uh, so much change over the, you know, right quote unquote way to parent uh, will help explain how some parents thought it was okay to send their kids to Elan. There's still a lot of, you know, differences in how people uh, should parent, you know, uh, as far as thoughts today. Uh, Then we'll take a look at Synanon, this therapy organization slash cult, really, I think definitely a cult, uh, that kicked off the troubled teen industry Elan would become a part of. And we'll also examine a few other Elan-type troubled teen programs, some still in existence today to illustrate how Elan is sadly not an isolated example of what we're talking about. So let's get started. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time for some learning. Uh, the wayward youth who would become Elan's first students were between 12 and 18 when the school was founded in 1974, meaning they were born between 1956 and 1962. Uh, these first students came at the tail end of the, the war's over, 
All the young dudes are home. So let's get to fucking and nesting baby boom generation that directly followed World War II. Hail to Safina. Uh, in the late 60s, when the first lawn students were kids, the counterculture we've talked about so many times here on Time Suck was going strong. Ambitious and original, the counterculture youth were the new heroes and heroines who would help propagate a new era of kick-ass tunes, funky anything but a suit and tie clothing, so much more drugs, so many uh, less haircuts than their predecessors, uh, and their comparatively straight-laced parents, many of whom had sacrificed so much for God and country, they didn't understand or frankly care for these goddamn hippies. Uh, Urban Dictionary defines goddamn hippie. I love that they have a, a definition, not just for hippie, but for goddamn hippie, as an individual who proceeds to sit on their lazy liberal asses smoking marijuana and philosophizing on Marxist Anglian ideas and the power of the working class whilst doing jack shit work themselves. Sounds more or less how my grandpa uh, defined them. Papa Ward uh, was not a big fan of the hippies. <laughs> uh, he didn't care for me having tattoos, uh, even though one of the tattoos I have features him or not being clean shaven. I used to have long hair. He really didn't care for that. Uh, glad he never learned how YouTube worked. Never saw my tale about dropping way too much acid one night in Vegas. He would have been thoroughly disgusted. Uh, I feel like the urban dictionary description is more or less how a lot of parents from the generation preceding the hippies saw their kids. They bought their houses in the suburbs with the white picket fence, right? They had their two kids. They bought a station wagon, boat, dog. They expected their kids to get a real job like they did so they could replicate their leave it to beaver, father knows best, steady as she goes lives. And then their kids heard some Zeppelin, smoked some joints, dropped some acid, maybe connected some unmarried D with some birth-controlled unmarried P in the empty back bedroom of a house party. And they were like, fuck that noise. Why get a house in the suburbs when you can get a Volkswagen bus? You can turn on, tune in, drop out, and follow the dead. One of the former students of Elon who talked about why his parents shipped him off actually said that's uh, part of why his parents were, were worried. They love getting stoned. Uh, and skipping school to leave town because the dead were always on tour somewhere. That's his quote. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, members of the greatest generation, those born from 1901 to 1927, and those of the following silent generation, both generations were the parents of the baby boomers. They'd seen war. They'd come out of the Great Depression. They didn't take any security in life for granted. Their values were shaped not by a desire for self-expression, but by the ability to endure tough times, to be prepared for any more tough times ahead. Their lives were largely defined by self-sacrifice, hard work, faith and authority and religion. They needed both the government and God to get them through rough times. They were generally pro-establishment. And many of their kids, like kids are wont to do, rebelled against their parents' beliefs. They saw frugality as boring. They saw not security, but corruption in the government and the church. Working for the man to make a steady paycheck, settle down with a fellow square and kick out two kids? Uh-uh. How about sell some weed? Get as much ass as possible. Why settle down in the suburbs when you could hitch or hitchhike to LA or San Francisco and live there, right? Live free. Rather than eagerly serve their nation in war like their parents had in uh, World War II and Korea, many of these hippies protested U.S. involvement in Vietnam. They traded signing up for the service for organizing picket lines, petitions, and protest marches. The times they were a-changing and change, it can be scary. And a lot of parents got scared. And not all of their fear was unfounded. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll does not work out for everyone. For every Mick Jagger, Robert Plant, and Stevie Nicks, you know, there were always thousands and thousands of young dudes and hippie chicks who partied and partied and partied and did not get famous or ever make any money in the counterculture revolution. They ended up broke, eventually too old to still be a rebel without a cause cool. When the party was all over, they ended up with uh, drug addictions, jobless, burnouts, sitting in the park high as fuck, jamming on your guitar with only a hundred bucks to your name. Plays out a lot better at 20 than it does at 30, and it looks downright depressing at 50 comes across or can as romantic when you're young, and it often looks fucking foolish when you're older. 
The end of the flower child era would bring with it a harsh reality. Many of the young people who had once camped at Woodstock and flocked from all over to Berkeley for the summer love were now living on the streets, addicted to drugs, engaging in various criminal activities to support their habits, a relentless dedication to self-expression and living in the moment, a perpetual carpe diem live for today and not tomorrow attitude had eventually stopped working out when tomorrow showed the fuck up and the bills were due. The Piper finally arrived and damn it, they wanted to get paid. Kids who grew up in the 70s, those first lawn students, were kids who'd watched the counterculture movement turn from a free-spirited celebration of self-expression to burned-out young adults with few prospects. And many of their parents did not want that shit to happen to them. And I'd say that's fair. That's a fair concern. And when these parents caught their more rebellious kids ditching class, defying authority, screwing around with the opposite sex, doing drugs, rebelling against them, etc., some of them got more than worried. They got really scared. They didn't want their kids to end up like so many of those goddamn hippies. And they made the drastic and terrible parenting decision to send their kids to a place like a lawn. Let's talk about parenting decisions for a bit. This episode kind of hinges on terrible parenting decisions, since the overwhelming majority of Elan students were not sent there by the state, but were paid to be placed there by parents. Parenting, man. It is hard. Uh, I have a 13 and a 15-year-old now, and they both really fucking suck, and they're hard to get rid of. I can tell you that personally. Uh, I've tried pushing both of them out of the tree fort at various times. Uh, not only have they lived, neither of them have even broken any bones or anything. Uh, I've greased the stairs that lead up to the room. Uh, neither have taken an unfortunate unfortunate and untimely tumble. You know, they're crafty and they're resilient. And I'm kidding, of course. Gosh dang. Uh, I love my kids. I got lucky. I have two great kids, fantastic young meat sacks, but it still is hard to parent them. Lindsay and I constantly wonder if we're doing it the right way. Uh, you don't really know what you're in for until you're in the thick of it. The old cliche is true. Like you're not given a handbook no guidebook. You know, there are only suggestions of other parents and so-called parenting experts. And what they say you should do is basically continually changing. The way parents were being taught to parent was changing dramatically in the 60s and 70s of the 20th century, leading up to those kids getting sent to a lot. Uh, the way we meet sacks have reared children has changed substantially over the past century. Uh, the very concept of childhood has changed so, so much over the last uh, few hundred years. Uh, we've sucked so many historical figures who were you know, out there working full-time and helping to support their families when they were the age of grade schoolers today. Stuff just constantly blows my mind. Harry Houdini, I read early time suck episode, found out he left Milwaukee in search of better work to more properly help out his family when he was fucking 12 back in 1886. 1910, over 2 million children in the U.S. under the age of 15 were employed. Kids in America under the age of 10 were working 12-hour shifts in factories at that time. Can you imagine yourself working a 12-hour factory shift, sometimes a graveyard shift, overnight shift, when you were eight years old, nine? Can you imagine your nine-year-old putting away their Legos at 3 p.m. so they get some shut-eye before heading over to the horse glue factory, whatever shit it was at midnight? Mommy, can I have some uh, extra slice of bologna so I don't get white-headed at the glue factory tonight? Mommy, we get my fussies up when I come home from the factory at lunchtime tomorrow? Can you help me wash the toxic carcinogenic Chemicals on my hell, mommy? Maybe we can have a picnic soon, mommy, when my arm heals from falling in the bottling machine the other night at the factory and burning my arm skin off, mommy. It's, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. Can't believe it happened so recently. Uh, going back a little earlier, in 19th century Great Britain, one third of poor families were without a breadwinner as a result of death or abandonment, obliging many children to work to feed the family. In England and Scotland in 1788, two-thirds of the workers in 143 water-powered cotton mills were described as children. 
high number of children at that time uh, were described as working as prostitutes. I mean, what the fuck? Uh, famous English author Charles Dickens worked at the age of 12, putting labels on bottles of shoe polish in a factory. In certain less developed parts of the world, millions of kids work in sweatshops right now. An estimated 218 million kids as young as five years old are employed worldwide. At least 152 million are in forced child labor, uh, according to basic facts about child labor published by the Child Labor Coalition. Almost half these kids are between the ages of five and 11. Listen to one girl's story from a small village in India from just a couple years ago. Uh, my sister is 10 years old. Every morning at 7 a.m., she goes to the bonded labor man. And every night at nine, she comes home. He treats her badly. He hits her if he thinks she is working slowly or if she talks to the other children. He yells at her. He comes home looking for her if, he, if she is sick and cannot go to work. I feel this is very difficult for her. I don't care about school or playing. I don't care about any of that. All I want is to bring my sister home from the bonded labor man. For 600 rupees, I can bring her home. That is our only chance to get her back. But we don't have 600 rupees. We will never have 600 rupees. You know how much 600 rupees is worth? Eight fucking dollars. Eight dollars. This kid, her whole family can't put together eight dollars to get her little sister out of a, a labor camp. It's, oh my God. Uh, most modern attitudes towards children in the developed world did not emerge until the past century. Previous to that, in many cultures, going back to ancient Rome and the Greeks, uh, women could be married at 12, men at 14. Uh, they still got married that young, less than 100 years ago here in America. Wasn't necessarily the norm, but totally legal. And it did happen often uh, in certain parts of the country, especially. In ancient and medieval civilizations, it was a regular practice to give girls away in marriage as soon as they reached puberty, if not earlier. This practice continued throughout the Middle Ages, and most girls were married by the age of 15. Back then, instead of families worrying about troubled teens, wondering whether or not they should send their teen to a place like the Elan School, teens were already out of the house most of the time, married, working full-time, had fucking families of their own. You didn't send a teen to rehab. If you sent them anywhere, you just sent them out into the real world to fend for themselves. Uh, let's talk about childhood discipline now. The way childhood is viewed has shifted so, so much over the years. The way to discipline kids has shifted substantially as well. On uh, colonial America, Puritan beliefs shaped the way early Americans viewed the needs of children. The term Puritan came to mean against pleasure. Fun. We've talked about Puritans before. <laughs> Not a fun-loving group. Uh, for America's early Puritans, too much play was considered sinful. Idle hands being the devil's workshop kind of mentality. Puritan parents wanted to raise obedient children, so they provided religious training to their children, taught them to memorize scripture. Family life was very patriarchal. You did what dad said or dad beat the shit out of you. And you did what mom said or dad beat the shit out of you. Spare the rod and spoil the child. The rod in the original Massachusetts Bay Colony was a birch rod, which was not actually a single stick. It was a bundle of leafless twigs all tightly bound together. Enough weight to do some damage, pliable enough to really be whipped Typically, you were whipped with this bundle of sticks on your bare ass until it was red, swollen, and often a bit bloody. That'll teach you not to memorize your hymns or drop an egg or look at dad cross or whatever. Uh, little care was given to the Puritan child's individual desires, almost no care or emotional needs. For Puritans, discipline equaled love. Authority and obedience described the relationship between parents and children. Puritan discipline was based on spiritual concerns. A breakdown in family rules symbolized a breakdown in God's own order. And as many know, religion was essential for Puritans. Little Jebediah didn't get the cow milked when his parents had told him to milk the cow. Little Jebediah got his ass whipped so that his wanton, careless, listless ways didn't erode the moral fiber of the entire family. 
Puritan parents thought they were quite literally beating the devil out of their kids when they disciplined them. They were taught that all of us are born in sin, wicked from birth, righteous beatings could save souls. Children were wild horses that needed to have their spirits broken and tamed. Children were often whipped in public, forced to make public confessions at meetings. Uh, matters such as the rights of children were fucking laughable, not considered. And in the early days of America, parents were far from the only adults whooping on the kids. Uh, teachers hit kids a lot uh, with sticks. They used shit like a whispering stick as a punishment for, uh, you know, whispering. Uh, disciplinarians in this example would tie a wooden gag with holes in it onto a child's tongue. Many children had a cleft stick, a stick split at the end, placed on their tongues for, quote, ill words or untimely words in school. Just get tortured for talking during school. All these whoopings were going on in the 17th century when kids, by and large, outside of the children of nobles and the wealthy, were seen as little more than savage beasts who had to be taught, molded, sometimes literally beaten into a civilized form of some kind of animal. All of that would get Child Protective Services and or the police called in on you today. But in 1650, you could put a cleft stick on your kid's tongue all fucking day long. You wouldn't get in trouble. You whip them with that birch stick as much as you wanted. You were just a firm, God-fearing parent. Today, probably going to jail. Uh, the modern notion of childhood with its own autonomy and goals only began to emerge in the Western world during the 18th century Enlightenment. The 17th century English philosopher John Locke was particularly influential in defining this new attitude towards children, especially with his theory of tabula rasa, meaning blank slate. Uh, Locke theorized that people's minds at birth were a blank slate without rules for processing data, and that data was added and rules were, uh, for processing were formed solely by one's sensory experiences. According to his theory, a child's mind was a blank slate, right? It was blank, and it was the duty of the parents to give it the correct sensory experiences, shape it the right way. Locke himself emphasized the importance of providing children with easy, pleasant books to develop their minds rather than just beatings. Uh, writing, children may be cozened, uh, cozened into a knowledge of the letters, be taught to read without perceiving it to be anything but a sport, and play themselves into that which others are whipped for. And this was, for most of the world at the time, a novel idea. Like, people's minds were blown. Wait, what? You don't have to constantly beat your children to develop them into adults. You can let them read books. Are you shitting me? How are we parents supposed to get our workouts in if we're not constantly chasing, whipping our children? Uh, Locke's ideas applied to child rearing gained traction following his death in 1704, building on the ideas of John Locke and other 17th century thinkers. 18th century French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, described childhood as a brief period of sanctuary before people encountered the perils and hardships of adulthood. He thought, and I know this is crazy, that childhood was a beautiful period of innocence that should be protected. <laughs> okay, funny guy. Books instead of beatings? Right. And we're supposed to shelter children from the harsh realities of the world? What next? Should we tell kids that they're loved? Should they be nurtured and made to feel special? Should they not work 12-hour graveyard shifts in factories? No, no, thank you. I'll stick to the old birch rod. Uh, not trying to raise a sissy. If an apple a day keeps a doctor away, I guess constant fucking beatings or would keep that doctor employed. Uh, as the century wore on, the new insane notion of childhood as a time of innocence led to the first campaigns for the imposition of legal protection for children. In the 19th century, in Victorian England, uh, the genre of children's literature uh, also took off with the proliferation of humorous, child-oriented books attuned to child's imaginations. This was new. Uh, Lewis Carroll's fantasy book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, published in 1865 in England, was a landmark in the genre, regarded as the first English masterpiece written for children. Its publication opened the first golden age of children's literature. 
Right before this, don't give a fuck about kids. Like, writing, like you know, books for kids. Get out of here. Uh, the latter half of the 19th century saw the introduction of compulsory state schooling for children across Europe, which decisively removed children from the workplace into schools. Now, poor kids, not just nobles, uh, were supposed to learn and shit, enrich themselves instead of just being expendable cogs on the wheel of industry. Goddamn hippies! Uh, in a lot of places, this happened in the latter half of the 19th century. It took a while for all the kids to be taken out of the factories, though. Uh, actually, what am I talking about? Like, I was talking about millions of kids still in factories, right? Uh, 1916, federal legislation was finally passed in the U.S. Uh, regulating what kind of work kids can do in factories, what age they had to be, how long they could work, etc. cetera. Uh, two years later, that law was repealed thanks to the successful lobbying efforts of wealthy and influential industrialists. How dare Uncle Sam stand in the way of my livelihood by telling me I can't hire able-bodied children to work long hours doing grueling work for little pay. In a dangerous factory, completely free of any and all safety regulations with no legal recourse should said conditions bring about their death or disability. Anti-child labor legislation wouldn't begin to be firmly passed in the U.S. until 1937. That's pretty recent. Meanwhile, some Western kids are still working in factories. The same industrial revolution that gave birth to those factories also has given birth to a new and lucrative children's toy market. With the birth of toys being produced in mass in factories, childhood now seen as a profitable industry. And this will help usher in a new age of letting kids uh, be kids and maybe not work and be beaten all the time. Don't, don't just beat them. Now when you can sell them toys and candy and Halloween costumes and children's programs and make a lot of money off them. By the mid 20th century in America, an intense interest in using institutions to support the innate creativity of children develops. More nurturing. New institutions help reshape children's play, the design of suburban homes, schools, parks, and museums. Dad's drinking den has turned into a family room. Goddamn hippies! The ruin in America. Uh, toys were designed to promote creativity. Art was now included in school curriculums for the first time. It was okay for the kids to play. And, and the ethos of let the kids play has remained in the West and much of the world until the present day. Now let's look at how parents were being instructed by experts in the 20th century when it came to having and raising these kids. I think this helps the existence of a lawn and similar institutions make a bit more sense. Like how could parents think it was okay to send their kids to a lawn? Well, because they had a different perspective on how they were supposed to raise kids than we do now. Because they've been fed all sorts of crazy ideas regarding how you're supposed to raise kids. The way many of us think we should raise uh, you know, kids now, how we should parent, uh, very different than the way many of our parents were taught to raise their kids. And that was way different than the generation before and so on and so on. The rules, like I said before, they just keep changing. <laughs> Some of the stuff is so fascinating to me. Back in 1910, moms-to-be in the US were told that in order to have a beautiful baby, they must refrain from thinking ugly thoughts. Like they actually thought that if you thought about ugly stuff, that would make your baby ugly. <laughs> My God, Carol, look at Buford's beady eyes and tiny chin. What were you thinking when you were pregnant? Literally, what were you thinking? Just constant thoughts of monsters, dog droppings, and toilets. Did you even give birth to Buford? Or did you just shit this beady-eyed gremlin turd out of your witch's cauldron? Uh, in the 1910s, uh, experts encouraged parents to put a baby in an oversized shoe. Instead of holding them, they believed that handling your baby <laughs> as little as possible was the best was the best way to do it. It's a good thing. Not holding them nurtured their independence. They're talking about tiny ass babies. We now know, uh, hopefully you know, not good to ignore your baby. Uh, that would be called neglect. Neglect is no longer in style. It's no longer uh, parentally accepted. You're supposed to give your kids attention and all kinds of stuff now. Uh, extreme emotional neglect can actually lead to something really terrible called failure to thrive. When babies literally get so sad, they stop growing 
in, in very extreme cases, they can actually die from neglect. This is like the saddest thought of a death to me. Uh, two decades later, a lot of parenting experts weren't any smarter when it came to babies. A pamphlet published by the U.S. government in 1932, really not that long ago, <laughs> suggested that one should start toilet training their baby immediately after birth, like a newborn baby. Uh, what? Clearly, doctors did not yet have a firm understanding of the timeline for baby's motor skill development. <laughs> now we know that the average baby potty trains somewhere around 27 months, not at birth. Newborn babies, they can't even control what their fucking arms are doing. They're just like, wait, their arms, they don't, they have no more control of their arms than you have control of their arms. Like they, they can't hold their head up, let alone sit on a toilet and wipe their own asses. What were people thinking back then? This illustrates why modern large sample size control group, well-designed scientific studies are so important. That's why science is so important. Without proper research and analytics, we just do what we think sounds like the right thing to do. And that is often absolutely not the right thing to do because we're a highly emotional and often very irrational species. C come on, newborn baby! You're a tiny little person! Act like it! Why can't you do little person things, stupid baby? You have little legs? Use them to walk around, baby! You have tiny little arms and hands? Use them to wipe your tiny little butthole, you stupid little tiny baby! Uh, three decades later, the stupidity continues. In a 1962 book, Dr. Walter Sackett, a parenting expert of the day, <laughs> this is 1962, recommends giving black coffee to babies starting at six months of age to stimulate them. Drink your coffee and drink it black. Uh, drink it piping hot, you stupid little baby. Uh, he also recommended, <laughs> recommended serving bacon and eggs to babies starting at six weeks old. <laughs> oh, baby. Guess I'll, guess I'll help you tear up your bacon again. Oh, I don't have teeth. I can't control my arms. I'm a stupid little burn baby. I can't even eat bacon because I'm so dumb. Uh, I lay all this out to show how much the concept of childhood and the right way to parent has changed so much over the years. And it keeps changing. People have very different opinions right now about how children should be parented. Some parents view spanking, for example, as necessary and fair. Some view it as abuse. Uh, according to a 2018 Psychology Today article and according to the websites of a few law firms, the legal spanking of a child involves smacking the buttocks with an open hand. If you apply excessive force, which is subjective, it is not considered reasonable or moderate discipline. If you leave a bruise, scratch, or cut with your open hand, it is now considered legal child abuse. hundred years ago, though, open hand, closed hand, hand with a fucking stick in it, you can just go to town legally on a kid. Now, likely be charged with a felony or two. Uh, outside of discipline, so many different ideas of how kids should be parented. Uh, some believe that children should not have any worries and should not have to work. Life should be happy and trouble-free. While others think that children should have to develop certain responsibilities in childhood to prepare them for adulthood. Most people fall somewhere in the middle, balancing the need to create good meat sacks with the desire to create a better life for one's children, let them be a kid. Uh, some parents think that their kids should be able to run amok in a fucking restaurant and bother everyone around them without repercussion. Some parents think that their kids should be allowed to sit in the movie theater and talk as if they're at home. Some parents think that their kids should never, ever get a swat on the bottom, even if they spit in their face or hit the neighbor kid or try and gouge the family dog's eyes out. And this parent thinks that those parents should be beat with that old Puritan birch stick and that my kids should be able to take a couple swings on them as well. Uh, so many different ways to parent. <laughs> uh, to remain focused on today's topic, let's talk about how parenting shifted in the 70s and 80s and how someone could possibly send that a, a child that they presumably loved to a place as terrible as the Elan School. Time to dig into the troubled teen industry and the theory of tough love. Uh, the Elan School's methods would go unchecked for so long because of the pervasive idea at the time that rehab centers could use any means necessary to get people back on the right track. Just, just tough love. 
The ends justified the means. That was the logic. If a kid didn't get sent to prison or die during their time in a lawn or shortly thereafter, if they didn't end up out on the streets doing all kinds of illicit shit the moment they were released, well, then the program was a smashing success, regardless of how much psychological damage it may have actually done. A lot of parents were afraid that the subculture was ruining their kids' lives. And a lot of predators preyed on that fear. Some people saw families' fear for their children's well-being as a way to make a lot of money, spawning what has been called the troubled teen industry. Troubled teen facilities come in a variety of shapes, horrible sizes, boot camps, behavior modification facilities, wilderness therapy retreats, gay conversion centers, my God, and all are marketed to parents who feel like they desperately need to change their children's behavior in some way before they, you know, uh, die, ruin their lives, go to hell, whatever. Uh, These services claim to be able to fix anything parents think is a problem, being disrespectful, staying out too late, drug use, entitlement, criminal activity, playing too many video games, whatever. If the parents decide to heed the program's advice, their children are trapped in a highly unregulated and often uh, secluded camp with no means of defense or outside contact, which is terrifying. Now, and sometimes, make no mistake, troubled teens do get the help they need at these places, for sure. There are a lot of great programs, a lot of great counselors, a lot of success story testimonials you can find all over the place. However, the way these camps are set up, the setup is a great recipe for these kids to be abused, molested, taken advantage of in so many different ways. And that happens as well. There's just not enough regulation regarding who can work in these places and what kind of therapy, quote unquote, they can dole out. Many of these counselors, they're called counselors, they don't have a fucking degree in counseling. A lot of them don't have any degree. Uh, many of these places are, are basically completely unregulated. Sometimes these organizations like Elan, uh, you know, they would add humiliation and physical assault as a form of treatment. They just got to make up their own treatment. And these facilities, therapy can include food and sleep deprivation, vigorous labor, uh, verbal and physical abuse, psychologically scarring humiliation. In some extreme cases, young people have experienced solitary confinement, sexual abuse, have been killed at these places in this, uh, you know, unregulated $1.2 billion a year industry. As of 2020, between 50 and 100,000 adolescents currently spending at least part of their year in these facilities. I'm sure COVID has changed those numbers, but you know, outside of COVID. Uh, There are, I found out doing some extra research, a whole bunch of these places around the Suck Dungeon within like two, three hour drive. So many in Western Montana. Montana has a lot of these places because of an extreme lack of regulations. Uh, Some reporters in Missoula have been doing some investigative journalism, writing all kinds of troubling stories about these places the past few years. 16-year-old Carly Newman, whose 2004 suicide spurred a largely unsuccessful push for meaningful regulation of Montana's teen treatment centers, was put in isolation nearly 30 times in six months at Spring Lodge Academy in Thompson Falls. This is a two-hour drive from where I sit. Christopher Belanchi, a Harvard-affiliated board-certified psychiatrist who testified as an expert witness in a lawsuit stemming from Newman's death, said such methods don't teach young people helpful skills for navigating their emotional issues. He told the Missoulian, sure, I mean, you can coerce people to behave. Uh, That's what jails do. A lot of troubling shit has gone on at Spring Lodge Academy over the years. A lot of weird, creepy shit too, like cuddle puddles. This is so fucking ridiculous to me that this went on. Uh, Probably still goes on in a lot of these places. A former teen resident, Tori Jane, who was there in 2004 and 2005, described this, this cuddle puddles as, everyone would pile in the common room and cuddle. We weren't really allowed to touch each other otherwise. So that was like allowing them to release it all at once. Staff participated in it. Everyone would be rolling around on the floor and snuggling. Rebecca Mormon, uh, a teen there in 2004 and 2005 as well, described it as laying in a huge cuddle puddle. And there's almost always staff involved. 
there would be a situation where a male staff member in his 40s or 50s would be in a cuddle puddle with 14 and 15-year-old girls, lying there, spooning them, just the way you would lay with someone that you're in an intimate relationship with. She said they would be encouraged to scratch each other's backs, rub each other's hair, etc. What the fuck? Would you be okay with your teen daughter being told she has to participate, mandated, in a cuddle puddle with some middle-aged dude, or she'll be punished? I wouldn't. I would want to get a hold of Captain Cuddle Puddle and introduce him to Lieutenant Fist in the Face Party. Maybe trade the Cuddle Puddle for a fucking baseball bat monsoon. That shit is outrageous. Punishments often over the top of these places. Uh, at the recently closed New Horizons Youth Ranch in Rexford, Montana, near the Canadian border, just under 200 miles from the Suck Dungeon here, teen boys forced to stay there caught masturbating will be sentenced to a week and a half of rigorous all-day manual labor for beating off. And not like loudly beating off in front of other residents or staff. I mean, if you're whipping your dick out and you're beating your meat in, in the middle of a group therapy session, maybe screaming at the counselors while you do so, just fuck all you losers. Uh, uh, you like that? Uh, you like watching me jerk that dick? In that case, maybe some serious punishment is needed. Some strong behavior modification. But these kids, they would get severe punishment for like quietly beating it in their beds. You know, if they got caught or in the bathroom, if they got caught. That's just, that's just being a teenager. You might as well punish them for breathing. Long days of being basically on a chain gang because you listen to your God-given hormones. Other punishments included having nearly all your food taken away. Uh, if you tried to run away, you would lose most of your clothes for a while. I don't walk around in your undies for a week or more. You get caught beating off and running away. Well, I guess you're doing manual labor in your whitey tidies for a week or two. And these punishments are nothing compared to what would go on at the Elon school. What went on. So where does all this shit come from? Oh, these programs can trace their treatment philosophy. What did I just say? Philosophy? <laughs> these treatment, these programs can trace their treatment philosophy. Philosophy? Directly, I was. I kept trying to combine philosophy indirectly into one word, or indirectly to an anti-drug cult called Synanon. I'd never heard of this before. Founded in 1958, Synanon sold itself as a cure for hardcore heroin addicts who could help each other by breaking new initiates with with isolation, humiliation, hard labor, and sleep deprivation. Uh, Synanon was founded in Santa Monica, California, back in 1958 by uh, Charles Dietrich. In 1968, they would open their membership up to non-addicts, and that's when Synanon slowly changed into a cult. The time was right. How many times have we traced cult formations to California in the late 60s or like early 70s? Father Yod, Source Cult, uh, Manson Family, David Berg's Children of God, God, fucking creepy ass bastards, Jimmy Jones and the uh, People's Temple. I want to call him Jimmy. Jimmy Jones. Uh, let's really get our minds around the craziness that was Synanon. It'll help us understand Elon, and all on its own, it's just fascinating. Uh, going to dive a little deeper into this institution than I normally would on a side road. There's so much to it. We may have to do a full suck on Synanon someday. For now, a little, little half suck, a little mini suck. With, a little suck within a suck, we'll have to do. Uh, born in 1913 in Toledo, Ohio, founder Charles Dietrich was only four when his alcoholic father died in a car accident. His mother soon remarried, raised him as a devout Roman Catholic. Uh, Dietrich later recalled, I believed literally that I would go to hell if I didn't go to church on Sundays. When he was 14, he read his stepfather's copy of H.G. Wells' The Outline of History and, quote, became a militant atheist almost overnight. Soon after that, he began drinking a lot, uh, a lot, a lot. He drank his way right into dropping out of college. Then Charles bounced from job to job, marrying, divorcing, marrying again over the next many years. Desperate to stop drinking, he took part in an experiment at UCLA testing LSD as a cure for alcoholism in 1957 when he was 44. He'd later say that this one trip changed him forever, big time. He apparently had quite the trip, said he transformed into a totally different person. Sounds like he got his hands on some really, really good shit, some really fun stuff. 
Uh, he was done with drinking. He now became a voracious reader of philosophy and psychology. He especially loved the nonconformity espoused by Emerson and self-reliance, the utopian notions put forth by Thoreau, B.F. Skinner. Dietrich, living on $33 a week unemployment checks at the time, stopped going to his AA meetings after this trip. When other recovering alcoholics checked up on him, he engaged them in these impromptu meetings that were equal parts grad school symposiums and combative group therapy sessions. And these sporadic get-togethers soon became regularly scheduled affairs three times a week with more and more alcoholics showing up each week to scream at each other. Here we go. Uh, one day, a young heroin addict named Whitey Walker. That's a great name. That's like a name out of a book. Whitey Walker. Uh, fresh out of prison, joined in on one of these sessions and he liked it. And he told his addict friends. Uh, soon, other narcotics addicts started showing up and the sessions started to get heavier, darker, more intense. Dietrich loved the gritty realness of it all. He uh, felt like he was getting to the bottom of human nature. The sessions became known as synonyms, a portmanteau of Symposium and Anonymous. Dietrich, who let some of these addicts crash on his couch, came to believe that addicts were not full-fledged adults because of their addictions, and therefore they should not be treated as adults. The younger addicts started calling him dad. You know, he just got comfortable in this role of being like their father, right? Cult, cult, cult. Uh, when the gatherings grew too large for Dietrich's apartment, he leased a storefront on Ocean Park for 100 bucks a month. Beautiful part of Santa Monica where they were. Uh, the same year, 1958, Synanon uh, incorporates as a nonprofit. Uh, convinced that his new group therapy creation was a groundbreaking innovation on par with the creation of the alphabet, he said. Uh, no shortage of ego, like a lot of cult leaders. Dietrich predicted it would soon be as famous as Coca-Cola. Uh, it would not be, but it would become pretty damn successful. The city of Santa Monica did not like Dietrich or his new nonprofit. And before the first year was up, city inspectors declared the building they took their meetings in was not up to code. They had it bulldozed. Uh, Dietrich then moved his growing devoted flock of uh, 65 or so members at that time to an old National Guard armory building on the beach in Santa Monica. That pissed off his neighbors. Ten days after moving there, Dietrich and three others were arrested for treating drug addicts without a license and operating a hospital in a residential zone according to the Los Angeles Times. Apparently they had better regulations back then than they would have years later in Maine. Uh, he spent 25 days in jail and all that stint did was uh, help his cult grow. It, it got him a bunch of publicity. Word got out that Charles was getting addicts to come clean and stay clean. The Los Angeles Times ran a two-part feature on him and his group shortly after his arrest. The Los Angeles Mirror published a four-part series. A 14-page photo spread in Life magazine followed hailing Synanon as a tunnel back into the human race. Then there was a glowing write-up in Time Magazine, which repeated Dietrich's claim, which is probably not true, that 80% of addicts treated by Synanon stayed clean. Uh, reporters loved Dietrich. He gave them a rugged, feel-good piece to write on. Uh, he was very quotable. He's, he's the guy credited with coining that saying, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Uh, he told the New York Times, crime is stupid, delinquency is stupid, and the use of narcotics is stupid. What Synanon is dealing with is an addiction to stupidity. Cue laughter. Uh, I'm pretty sure addiction, a bit more complicated than that. Membership grew and grew, and within 10 years after its founding, Synanon boasted at least 1,100 members, was receiving $2.5 million a year in donations. It now owns $7 million worth of real estate in Santa Monica, West LA, San Diego, San Francisco, Reno, Detroit, New York City, Puerto Rico, and more. It has grown quick, right? Typical cult shit. People are just giving them their, their houses, their fucking, all their money. Uh, businesses, they owned a number of gas stations. They ran a million dollar a year specialty advertising business soon. And then shit started to get real weird. True believers started shaving their heads, wearing overalls, living together at Synanon compounds that started popping up all along the California coast. Patients started professing an almost, uh, you know, slavish obedience to Dietrich. People started joining who were not addicted to anything. 
They just like the lifestyle, the discipline. Phil Ritter entered the Bay Area branch of Synanon in 1970 as a non-addict or a square in Synanon speak. He was in search of an alternative lifestyle. He sold his car, moved into the eight-story Synanon building in downtown Oakland where he shaved his head. Getting your head shaved started out as a, as a punishment, actually, in Synanon, a way to haze newcomers. Then it just morphed into the norm for adherence. You can find these weird pictures of these guys all with like the shaved head, sometimes a little patch of hair in the back. Uh, 1969, the organization gets even cultier when they drop uh, their early goal of graduation for addicts who had completed various steps of the program. The program gets more and more developed all the time as the saying goes forward. Now Charles preaches, Synanon is for life, baby. He preached that addiction would be treated only by keeping addicts within the fold, i.e. stay on the compound. Cult, cult, cult. And then Synanon began to welcome non-addicts, right? Like Ritter, uh, Dietrich began telling people he wanted to create a utopian society. That was their goal now, you know, uh, a compound where everyone was free from drugs, crime, where he was the one true God, that kind of shit. Uh, He also got into the business of rehabbing kids for a bit. He created what he called the Punk Squad, a sort of boot camp devoted to disciplining juvenile delinquents sent to Synanon by their parents in the courts. This is the very beginning of America's troubled teen industry. Synanon rebranded itself in the 1970s from a drug treatment program to a psychotherapy program and started attracting middle-class people through the Synanon game, says sociologist Richard Offshee, who spent time in the organization studying it as a non-resident square. Uh, The game that he talks about here became the core of Synanon's philosophy. Uh, The game was played by two players sitting across from one another. Each would have two grids both hidden from their opponent's view. One grid represented your opponent's shit that they were dealing with, you know, and then the other grid represented your shit. And you had to place, you know, your your shit somewhere on the grid. You had to come up with five different types of shit you were dealing with. Each, you know, shit took up, you know, two to five spaces. And then it was your turn, you would call out a grid square, like uh, like A5, where you thought your opponent's shit, you know, might be, you know? And then your opponent would either say, you just called me on my shit, and that would be a hit, or that's not my shit, man, and that would be a miss. And when you covered your opponent's shit with hits, they had to say, you just made me deal with my shit. And then, you know, they'd take the shit off the board. Like if it was completely covered. And whoever made their opponent deal with all of their shit first would win. And that game does not, does it not ring very familiar? It sounds like some other game I've heard of that I just cannot fucking remember the name of it. It's like a, like a battle, like a battle game, like battle, battle of stars or, oh, I don't know. JK, ha, come on. No, I basically just laid out the rules for Battleship, but changed a few words around. Oh my heck, uh, that was not the game they played at all. That'd be weird if all of this uh, cult, this whole cult just revolved around like a, a janky ba- a Battleship. You just sunk my Battleship. Uh, the Synanon game was a therapy session where one member would talk about themselves, would reveal, you know, intimate details, personal problems, and then endure intense criticism by their peers who would fucking scream at them and, you know, pepper them with verbal abuse. The game, it's, it's preposterous. You can find videos of people doing this and it's just, it's outrageous. Uh, the game was the core of Synanon. It was the center of everyone's life while in rehab. The game was played by adult addicts, adult squares, troubled teens, a mandatory part of anything Synanon was involved in. According to Charles Dietrich, the game was the seed of Synanon. He said, first was the game. And the game's always capitalized when he talks about Everything came from the game. There was no thought of a foundation or giving any kind of name to the community or group when we started to have meetings back in 1958. The game produced the beginnings of the community. On the date of the first game, there was nothing that looked like it would le- uh, there was nothing that looked like it would someday be the ancestor of the community. I was occupying a little apartment in the Ocean Park. There was nobody who lived there that I knew, and very shortly after I began to moderate these games, people began to move down and a community formed. 
No one formed the community. The community formed itself. The community formed because of the game by the early 1970s. Some 3,400 squares in California, New York, and Detroit are paying cash money to participate in these games. They're paying to be yelled at, right? They think it's therapy. Also in the early 70s, Dietrich starts to declare that Synanon is an experimental society now, not just a program, it's a society. He moves to Marin County, starts wearing these overalls, only overalls, soon as followers, those with the you know shaved heads living together in these mini compounds, constantly playing the game. Now they all start wearing overalls, right? They all dress alike now, cult, cult, cult. Uh, when Dietrich quits his three-pack-a-day habit, he now uh, de- gives a decree that everybody else in Synanon has to quit too, and they do. He's really becoming a cult leader. In 1974, the organization is granted religious status by the federal government. Being a religion means Synanon will not need to be licensed anymore so they can get a lot fucking weirder. It eliminates a number of questions like, uh, when do Synanon adherents graduate and why do they have to obey Dietrich? Synanon adopts the slogan, the people business. Now, business is good. By the end of 76, they have assets worth $22 million, $8 million in annual revenue, coming largely from specialty advertising, uh, this division they had, as well as a mortgage business. Uh, the one member had donated to them, cult, cult, cult. It had an untold amount of cash contributions coming in from squares playing the game. Synanon owned 5,500 acres of property, including the six-story Del Mar Club in Santa Monica, now the Casa Del Mar Hotel, a cluster of nearby apartment buildings, three large compounds in Marin County, another in Badger, California, which also had an airstrip for them to use. Synanon uh, eventually owned a fleet of 200 cars, 400 motorcycles, 62 freight trucks, 20 boats, 12 airplanes, along with uh, a million plus invested in the stock market. By 1977, Dietrich was drawing an annual salary of 100 grand, roughly 400 grand in today's money. Uh, He also received a half a million dollar pre-retirement bonus. Synanon grew a private security force in the the late 70s, formed a paramilitary group, the Imperial Marines. They developed uh, their own type of martial arts called Sindo. By 1978, had amassed an arsenal of hundreds and hundreds of uh, automatic guns, we're concerned about the rising crime rate, a Synanon newsletter explained. If trouble should occur, we're prepared to handle it. The cult now has its own little private army. Nothing to be alarmed about. Just a cult with an army. Uh, you know, echoes of David Koresh there. Diedrich uh, began to deliver endless monologues broadcast at Synanon facilities over The Wire, they called it, their own FM radio station. Diedrich preached, act as if, which meant do not try to reason as to what Synanon asks you to do, as thinking got them in trouble in the first place. Just trust that, you know, to do what you are told and act as if it is right. Don't think for yourself, he's saying here. Let me do all the thinking for you. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, Dietrich had designed an efficient program of individual emotional breakdowns, followed by a mass group euphoria, all designed to re-educate individuals into the Synanon philosophy and lifestyle. Dietrich said, at the end of this rainbow, there will be a pot of gold. Through dissipation or long hours of activity without very much sleep, we hope to bring about in you a conscious state of inebriation. We want to get you loaded without acid. You will learn more about yourself, your fellow man, the world, the nature of reality in one weekend than you would in four years. Let your ego go. Let things happen to you. It's a feeling of closeness to each other. We are after the death of the ego, a reference point for the rest of your life. You may change your value system, notions about life and viewpoints about people. It will produce a new breed of human beings with greatly expanded potentials. If you do your best, you can't fail. Let go of your value system. Let go of your ego. Become one with the group. That's exactly what you do in a cult. Uh, Members were now being told their lives depended on staying in the Synanon program, staying in the centers. Contacts with family now were prohibited, right? Their families helped them get in this addiction mess. Stop talking to your family. Only talk to the cult. 
A system of rewards and punishments were applied for good and bad behavior. Uh, then also uh, uh, in the late 70s, Dietrich decided he didn't want followers to have kids anymore. Families got in the way of a lifelong devotion to the cult. Uh, he gave a no children mandate. Women were encouraged to have abortions. Dietrich once said, having an abortion is like squeezing a boil. Nothing more. Yeek. Men were pressured into getting vasectomies. Uh, they were literally endless, ongoing, intense attack sessions going on, focused on males who refused to get vasectomies, uh, one former member says. As soon as they gave in, they'd walk into the next room and there were doctors waiting to give them vasectomies. <laughs> Dietrich was running his, his followers' lives with an iron fist and he justified it all as being a price worth paying to stay clean off of the drugs, away from the vice of the outside world. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, when his wife Betty died in 1977, Dietrich, who was then 64, had female followers apply to be his new bride. He told reporters, I sent up a flare like any monarch of old times would have done. He actually fucking says this to the media. I let the word out I was available. He chose Ginny Shorin, a 31-year-old teacher uh, at one of Sinanon's schools to be his bride. Yeah, these fuckers have schools now for what kids the members do have. Shortly thereafter, Dietrich decides that marriage should no longer be permanent. I mean, he likes Ginny, but he doesn't want to always be with her. He, he, couples are now told to split up and form new three-year-long quote-unquote love matches. And within days of this decree, 230 couples file for divorce. <laughs> Not everyone was down for all this shit, though. And more and more members are starting to speak out against Dietrich as he gets crazier. They're starting to leave Synanon, and they would often get punished. Uh, in the late 70s, allegations of revolting members being violently attacked began to surface. On March 20th, 1978, a former member of Synanon, Tom Cardinot, was severely beaten for being an alleged spy while tied to a post during his honeymoon. Honeymoon. Synanon members also beat a neighboring rancher to one of their little compounds, uh, this man with the last name of Gambioni, who was helping children in Synanon Teen Treatment Center, uh, a treatment center there, run away and return to their parents. Uh, one day, as a fellow, uh, uh, as, uh, a former follower, Phil Ritter, whose wife and child were still in the cult, as he was returning home from the supermarket, two young men from Synanon approached him without saying a word, just beat him with wooden mallets. They left him on the ground, bleeding with a fractured skull. That attack among at least 18 that the California Attorney General's office linked to Synanon and its Imperial Marines. We really may have to do a full suck on these fucking weirdos someday. Uh, three declarations written in 1983 by three Synanon officials in exchange for immunity from prosecution stated that Imperial Marines prepared a hit list of Synanon enemies approved by Dietrich's assistant, a man named Walter Lubell. Uh, the hit list included former Synanon President Jack Hurst, whose guard dog was later found hanged, and Phil Ritter, guy we just talked about. According to the declarations, Imperial Marines traveled to Los Angeles and planted a rattlesnake in the mailbox of an investigative journalist and lawyer, Paul Morantz, who'd been filing lawsuits on behalf of ex-members. That snake would bite him and he would be hospitalized for six days. He'd almost die. Uh, he, he thinks, I, there was an article uh, I read where he was uh, talking recently about how he thinks, um, like yeah, his health has never been the same. He thinks it like messed him up pretty much permanently. Putting a fucking snake in a mailbox, that's like something out of a cult movie. A month later, Los Angeles prosecutor John Watson and 30 law enforcement officials descended on Synanon's new million-dollar compound in Lake Havasu to arrest Dietrich on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder for the, for the rattlesnake thing. Uh, they found him, according to Watson, in a stupor, staring straight ahead, an empty bottle of Chivas Regal in front of him. He was so drunk he had to be carried to jail in a stretcher. The man who'd built a fortune on a business that started out focused on getting people clean got so fucking hammered knowing that authorities were going to bust his ass and shut all that shit down. Uh, in 1980, Dietrich pleaded no contest to conspiracy to commit murder. He was fined $10,000, which seems very light, sentenced to five years of probation, 
I guess Morant agreed to let Dietrich avoid prison time because he was in very poor health and barred from having any affiliation with Synanon. Absent its charismatic leader, the group then floundered. The IRS revoked its tax-exempt status, ordered Synanon to pay $17 million. In a lengthy court battle that ensued, Morantz provided hundreds of documents he'd unearthed that implicated Dietrich and other Synanon officials in all kinds of criminal acts. The court finally ruled against Synanon in 1984, finding that it had a policy of terror and violence and a practice of diverting corporate resources for the enrichment of individuals. And then Synanon declared bankruptcy in 1991. Uh, but by the time Synanon had shut down, its model had already been widely copied and generally applied to kids. The troubled teen industry was up and running. After being convicted, Dietrich moved with his wife, Jenny, into a double-wide mobile home in Visalia. He died in 1997, a few weeks shy of his 84th birthday. Right? Crazy story, right? I had never heard of Synanon prior to, again, uh, research for this suck. Uh, Synanon ended up spawning, yeah, the entire troubled teen industry that would include the Elan School. Uh, in 1971, the federal government gave a grant to Florida, uh, to a Florida organization called The Seed, which applied Synanon's methods to teenagers, even though they were uh, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, suspected of trying drugs. Kids were still forced to play the game, though, and much more. Uh, in 1974, Congress opened an investigation into such behavior modification programs, finding that The Seed used methods, quote, similar to the highly refined brainwashing techniques employed by the North Koreans. The bad publicity led some supporters of the seed to create a copycat organization under a different name, Straight Incorporated. By the mid-80s, Straight was operating in seven states. First Lady Nancy, just say no, Reagan declared it her favorite anti-drug program. More kids constantly being screamed at in the game, uh, subjected to harsh and unnecessary punishments, isolation, sleep deprivation. Uh, as with the seed, abuse was omnipresent, in, you know, beatings, kidnappings at these places. Uh, facing seven-figure legal judgments, it closed in 1993. Another Synanon offshoot was CEDU Educational Services Incorporated, which operated from 1967 all the way to 2005. The average time a student spent at a CEDU school was two and a half years. The school year was year-round. The original CEDU program did not believe in using medicine to fix students' problems. Instead, three times a week for four hours, students would attend RAPS, pseudo-psychology group sessions led by untrained staff. Uh, students and staff were incentivized to indict students for minor rule infractions in the name of emotional growth. Yelling was appropriate and expected. So, you know, they would just fucking scream at kids for hours. Just scream away all the problems, right? Discipline out those problems. Medicine is bad. Medicine is drugs and drugs are bad. We should scream and said, uh, man, the blanket beliefs like, you know, drugs are bad. Medicine is bad. I fucking hate them. Some drugs are bad. You know, meth is bad. I highly doubt anyone's life is improved off of meth. Uh, weed though, Weed's a drug that has been maligned in mainstream culture for decades until recently. I'm sure a lot of kids were sent to a lawn in similar schools for weed. Uh, cannabis is fucking great for a lot of people. It's given me the best sleep of my life. Some of my friends who smoked a ton of weed in college who still smoke so much weed have, uh, you know, become very successful people. What works for one doesn't work for all. CEDU education was sold to Brown schools in 1998. Brown schools operated 11 boarding schools and educational facilities in California, here in Idaho, Texas, Vermont, Florida, uh, facilities in Austin, Texas, and San Marcos, Texas, sold to Psychiatric Solutions Incorporated in 2003. This is bullshit. Some of these places, they can call themselves like Psychiatric Solutions, but not have any psychiatrists. In March 2005, Brown schools declared bankruptcy, in part because of legal costs related to lawsuits by the families of several former students. But there are still uh, so many schools like this that haven't shut down out there operating today. Loopholes and state laws, a lack of federal oversight has allowed many shuttered programs to just simply change their names and reopen when they get in trouble, often with the same staff in the same state. 
Many of these programs operate in uh, Utah and Montana. You know, we mentioned Montana earlier. Uh, why those states? Because they have the least regulations for how these programs, you know, are required to run. And this is how it was for the Elon School. They they were located in Maine. Uh, Maine at the time did not regulate much of anything when it came to these schools. Not really. They'd go inspect them, but they'd always tell them when they were coming by beforehand. No surprise inspections that might actually lead them to catching them doing some shady shit. For years, the government in Maine just completely ignored what was going on at Elon. And that's, let's get exactly into what horrors were going on in today's Time Suck timeline, right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening, Curious Meat Sacks. Allow me to now hit the timeline button. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Elon's founder. Guy, I really don't think you're going to like very much. Joseph J. Ritchie, born on August 29, 1946, to an Italian-American family in the town of Port Chester, New York. Ritchie's father abandoned his pregnant wife before his son was born. Ritchie ended up being raised by his maternal grandparents after his mother signed away custody. According to family from a young age, Ritchie proved to be an intelligent and very charming person. He was friendly and talkative, always maintaining a cool-headed attitude around others. He was a born leader, not a follower. But beneath Richie's friendly exterior, some troubling tendencies were developing. From an early age, those who knew him uh, said Richie developed an insatiable greed for money. He didn't care how he obtained it. Uh, From police reports and the tales of, you know, maybe those who didn't seem to care for him as much, it seemed he also showed early signs of sadism. Uh, While most kids found recreation in games like baseball or basketball, Richie found pleasure in harming animals and engaging in acts of theft, theft, robbery, and burglary. Uh, When he was 12... Now, 1957, 1958, Richie began dating his middle school science teacher, i.e. he was molested by his middle school teacher. Since he was a teacher and he was in middle school, uh, a source wrote that they were dating. I doubt they would have written it that way if it was a male teacher and a female middle schooler. Uh, Kind of a fucked up double standard there. Uh, He became sexually promiscuous by the time he entered high school. In the, uh, you know, end of the 50s, early 60s, he would often skip class, commit acts of vandalism, break into parked cars, steal food from restaurants just for the fun of it. He himself was a troubled teen. And he'd lean on this when selling his program to parents later. He knew how to help troubled teens because he'd been one, right? Who cares that no accredited psychological associations uh, really uh, uh, were thrilled about his treatment methods, but he was a troubled teen. Now that's all the experience he needed. He went to the school of hard knocks. Uh, When he was 15, 1960, 1961, uh, Richie was seriously injured in a car accident and spent months in the hospital recovering. He was given a massive amount of painkillers, which became, uh, you know, turned into an addiction. And this soon turned into a heroin addiction and then Richie started stealing uh, to buy heroin. After a stint in a juvenile prison, after getting caught for some kind of burglary, he dropped out of high school in 1966. 
Never went to college. For the next several years, he worked a series of odd jobs. In 1967, 20 year old Richie was arrested again, this time for robbing a mail truck. The skilled charmer manipulator was able to talk his way out of a prison sentence. Instead, he was sent to a rehab center in Connecticut as part of his plea bargain. This would uh, change the course of his life. Uh, 1969, off drugs, uh, either away from crime or at least not getting caught. Richie married, moved to Quincy, Massachusetts, where he uh, started up his own rehab center uh, called Survival Incorporated. And this business earned Richie a small fortune, low overhead, a lot of clients. He was good at it. Uh, the rampant drug use of the 1960s produced a whole host of addicts seeking treatment. And Richie's center soon became flooded with more patients than he could handle. And then came the kids. The youth of America were consumed by the rebellious hippie subculture, as we discussed earlier. Kids openly revolted against the strict system they'd been raised in, challenging conservatively held traditions, vying for more social freedom. A lot of kids are running into trouble with the law, becoming involved in drug use or sexual promiscuity, engaging in truancy from school. And all this created a moral panic among the older generation, right? They sought to repress that behavior among the youths. As we discussed earlier, parenting techniques, attitudes have constantly been changing and generally softening a lot over time. And back at this time, a lot of parents still thought the best way to run things was with a heavy hand, a lot of tough love. And many adults believe that the best way to combat this new rebellious, troublesome attitude amongst teens was to forcibly correct their supposedly deviant behavior, often by enrolling them in controversial alternative schools for troubled teens that went real hard on corporal punishment. And Joe Ritchie had a light bulb moment with all this. He saw a huge opportunity and he shifted his focus from troubled adults who could leave his program whenever they wanted to and often did to troubled teens who he could legally run down when they ran away and drag their asses back to his center, keep getting a fat paycheck from mom or dad or the state, whoever would place them there. You know, there was uh, both private money and state grant placement money to be had. Richie could control the teen population much more effectively than adults. 1970, Richie meets a child psychiatrist named Gerald Davidson, Dr. Ger uh, Davidson, who specialized in adolescent behavior modification programs, especially in regards to drug abuse and criminal uh, versatility. Davidson, uh, interesting character, real mixed bag. He had his doctorate at Stanford, uh, currently a professor at USC. He was once a dean, got a bachelor's from Harvard, also practiced conversion therapy, trying to make gay kids become straight through behavior modification, reward, and punishment systems. Uh, he's authored psychological textbooks. Uh, he's gotten some things right. He's got some things very wrong. Uh, I'm guessing he regrets, hopefully regrets what went on in the lawn. I don't know. Davidson may have been motivated by a genuine desire to help steer troubled kids back onto the right path. That's what a lot of the sources seem to indicate. Uh, it seems as if he moved on away from the school not too long after co-founding it. Uh, Richie shares his thoughts about working with teens. And uh, he and Davidson decide to go into business together, establish their own alternative school for troubled teens. Richie chooses the state of Maine because they had the least you know, laws regarding such facilities in the entire Northeastern region of the U.S., He'd be able to create his own totalitarian empire with little worry of the state taking any action against him. Now, uh, were money and control his primary motivations? Did he really want to help kids and was excited about the money he'd be able to make doing so? You know, and be able to do it his way? I can't say for certain. Based on watching a documentary and reading a lot about him, watching a lot of interviews of him, I think he was definitely in this just for the money. Uh, I also think he got off on being sadistic. He seems like a real piece of shit. Uh, May 30th, 1971, Richie and Davidson set up camp outside the small rural town of Poland, Maine. About 6,000 now, only 2,000 in 1971. And in the middle of the dense Maine wilderness, Richie purchases a 33-acre uh, area of land with an old hunting lodge. He clears out the property, constructs a series of trailers and buildings to serve as this new school. Richie names the institution Alon, a word meaning energy, style, and enthusiasm. 
It's a pretty good name, actually. Uh, Richie builds a veil of legitimacy surrounding this school of his, uh, painting it as a source of salvation for troubled children. The last stop for them. Only he can save them. Uh, Richie builds lawn school as a radical new treatment center that would correct rather than punish bad behavior by teens. That's a fucking joke. All they did was punish. Uh, Richie painted himself as a caring mentor who would guide troubled kids back into the right path towards productive, better lives. Everything in a lawn, Richie said, was geared towards helping troubled teens reintegrate into society. Richie's sales pitch was very successful. Within a year, Alon's enrollment grew from just uh, four children when it first opened to more than 100. Parents of troubled teens as well as juvenile court judges began sending youngsters to Alon from all across the U.S. to be rehabilitated. But did the Alon School actually rehabilitate them? Eh, some former students think it did actually, but in a very unnecessary way, right? At what cost did the rehab come? Uh, Alon students, usually between the age of 12 and 18, came from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some were orphans sent by guardians who just couldn't take care of them. That's especially sad to me. Kids who didn't even fucking do anything wrong. They were just like, this was just like the best option somebody thought for them to go be raised. Blah. Others were juvenile offenders uh, ordered to enroll in Elan as, a, as part of a criminal sentence. Some were the heirs of multimillionaires who were enticed by the idea of a boarding school in the middle of the woods. Some were kids, you know, just having academic trouble. If a parent's willing to pay the cost their kid got in, there was no real vetting process for kids whose parents were willing to pay the tuition costs which makes all this extra fucked up, right? These kids are just, you know, put in constant therapy even if they weren't having any problems at all. At Elan, there were kids who didn't fuck around with drugs or struggle in school or screw around with the opposite sex. There were kids who were just, you know, depressed, suicidal, simply misunderstood, or just simply just not wanted by asshole parents or there was just nowhere for them to go. Uh, there were also kids suffering from mental illness, kids who were on the uh, autism spectrum. There were kids sent to Elan solely because they were just different because they couldn't or chose not to fit in with others. Maybe they were just shy, Whatever the reason, if you were unlucky enough to be sent to Elan, the horrors of Elan often began before a student ever entered the institution's campus. The parents of a supposedly troubled teen, or whoever, some kid needed to go there, typically uh, heard of Elan by coming across one of their many advertisements, often in a newspaper, maybe they got a pamphlet in the mail. The parents of this teen would read about how Elan's revolutionary style of therapy was designed to radically change a troubled teen from a social deviant to an upstanding citizen. The parent of parents would then contact the staff at Elan and arranged to send their children there in order to undergo this behavioral therapy. It wasn't cheap. Tuition costs between $50,000 and $60,000 a year, more than a year at Harvard. Uh, oftentimes, the teens themselves would not be notified of the decision for them to go to Lon. They would not be taken by their family to Lon. They would be kidnapped. Uh, and Lon's controversial enrollment process hinged on the element of surprise for many. And the school would use some pretty extreme methods to ensure that teens made it on, a, on the campus. Once parents had enrolled their kid, everything was in place. Uh, Alon, if the parents wanted, would hire a teen escort company, also known as a youth transport firm, to literally abduct the teen in the middle of the night from their bedroom and bring them to the school. This is fucking crazy. Companies that did this uh, were not uh, <laughs> uh, within their legal rights to do that then, but they, but, I'm sorry, they were, they were within their legal rights to do this then and still are today. That's so crazy. Men, almost always big dudes, would break into the teen's bedroom uh, physically subdue them, tie them up with plastic handcuffs, throw them in a van, drive them to Poland, Maine, where they would then be handed over to the Elan school. So crazy. And the use of such services, uh, pretty controversial. You know, these services, kind of like a lot of these schools, subject to little or no government regulation in many states. For teenagers seized in the middle of the night by strangers, being abducted by a teen escort company can result in permanent mental trauma. Of course it can. 
for all the teens being taken to Alonnu, in some cases, even kids as young as 12 again, they were taken by criminals to be held for ransom, tortured, or maybe killed. Uh, you know, girls were terrified. Some girls later recalled that they believed that they're going to be raped, sexually assaulted, murdered by their abductors. And what the fuck was going on? <laughs> and look, in, in some extreme cases, in some extreme cases, I do get this. Like, if you just can't get your teen to commit to treatment, if they're really out of control, they're like addicted to heroin, they've tried committing suicide before, it looks like they're going to die very soon if something is not done, something drastic and desperate, the whole desperate times calling for desperate measures kind of deal. You know, for whatever reason, you just cannot get them committed involuntarily to a psychiatric hospital, then, okay, I guess in this scenario that I don't even know for sure if it exists, but I'll, I'm willing to say maybe exists, having them legally kidnapped better than having them die in that extreme situation. And I would think extremely rare situation, but damn, what if they just have a shitty attitude, right? Is that really a good option? Just let dudes bust into the room at midnight, wrestle them to the ground, haul them out to a van, drive them off. I just can't see myself ever doing that to Kyler or Monroe. I mean, outside of doing it as a joke, right? I mean, as a joke, yeah, yeah but only as a joke, right? Only if it's for some JK. <laughs> Can you imagine how fucked up that joke would be? Right? Like, do that to your kid? Like, uh, like the night before their 16th birthday, have abductors just break into their fucking room, grab them, handcuff them, you know, throw, throw them in a van, drive them around, take them to a dark warehouse, make them think they're going to kill them, maybe like tie them to a chair, threaten them for a while. Then all of a sudden you just turn on all the lights, all their family and friends are surrounding them, you got presents and cake. Surprise! <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. You're not getting killed by strangers. Happy birthday to you. Love you, buddy. Oh, come on. Look at this guy. Oh, man, we surprised him. Look at old Pee Pants McGee. Come on. Come on, buddy. Come on. Come on. Stop. Stop ugly crying. Come on. You're 16. Fucking man up. Uh, no. Uh, along with psychologically brutal. Even former residents who said that they uh, think it might have saved their life still thought it was super fucked up. Alon was located down a long dirt road in the middle of the main wilderness, completely cut off from the rest of the society, away from civilization. School itself... Not much more than some dilapidated trailer, trailers and, you know, buildings cheaply, cheaply built. Looked menacing, intimidating, evil even. Many former students still recall, uh, some of them several decades removed from Milan, the feeling of extreme dread that came over them when they first saw the school. Many times these teens would try to run away immediately upon arrival, but then burly guards waiting in the woods around Milan, you know, would, would capture them. These dudes just, you know, waiting to aggressively seize any escapees. Uh, Joe Ritchie, when interviewed by NBC News in 1979, said, At Elan, the first thing you learn is that you're not going to get out of here. No matter how many times you run away, we will go and get you. And he was right. Almost no one ever escaped. Once a teen was brought to Elan, the first phase of their dehumanization would begin. The student would be forced into a shower where, with no privacy, he or she would be forced to undress and give all their clothes and valuables to the school. Then they'd be presented with no-image clothes, bland, colorless clothing, the race, you know, any sense of individuality. Shortly after arriving at Elan, students had to write a guilt letter to their parents explaining why they deserved to be at Elan and not at home. These letters would be inspected carefully by staff. Again, think about the kids who hadn't done anything wrong. They still have to go through this bullshit. Uh, usually, students would have to write four or five revisions to the letter before it would be approved uh, to be sent home. Much like the, the cults of Am Shinriko and Heaven's Gate, Alon School sought to erase the past lives of its students, mold them into mindless, obedient servants, permanently cut them off from the outside world. Kind of cult, cult, cult. Uh, each new initiate would be assigned a big brother or big sister. Upon arrival, an older student who would act as sort of a guide. This, uh, this uh, older sibling would help the new student into their life in Alon. 
but also act as sort of a jailer, enforcing rules, reporting infractions to Alon's leadership. The big brother or sister would educate their partner about why Alon's program was good for them and if they were, uh, why they were a failure. They did not accept it. The big brother was not a friend to their partner. Uh, in fact, big brothers would often play cruel tricks on their companions, pretending that they wanted to run away and then swiftly reporting them to administrators once their companion agreed to escape with them. Much like what was seen in the infamous Stanford prison experiment, the big brothers often took sadistic pleasure out of using their superiority against lesser students. They were encouraged to act like this. If they ratted you out, they were rewarded. If not, they could get in trouble. Alon had a very bizarre, strict social hierarchy. Everything from when you could eat, uh, you know, to who you could talk to depended on your position within this hierarchy. Alon was divided into two basic classes of students, strength students and non-strength students. Non-strengths were not permitted to talk to other non-strengths unless the conversation uh, was monitored by a strength. Then overlaid on top of these two classes were various positions. You had to work your way up this privilege ladder to achieve. And you had to do a good job at each and every level uh, of this you know, program to graduate and get the hell out of a lawn. Each Alon house, and there were several different houses on the property, had five different offices. There was the uh, service crew, aka the janitors. Then the kitchen crew handled the food. The business office filed paperwork. The communications office brought news from the outside world. And the expediters, group number five, they enforced security. Each office had a specific hierarchy of positions each resident had to work through. Uh, when you showed up at Elan, you were a non-strength worker in the service crew. You cleaned and cleaned and cleaned. Get down, start scrubbing that floor. Uh, the focus was on humility. You did what you were told. You did a good job with no attitude or you kept cleaning. Clean all night if necessary. If you did a good job for long enough as a worker, then you can move up eventually and become a ramrod, another non-strength position where you supervised the work of the workers, the janitors, took detailed notes on how well they cleaned, instructed them to clean more if they didn't clean well enough because it was your ass uh, as well as theirs if they didn't do a good job. Above the ramrods were the expediters. Now you were a strength position for the first time. These were students put in charge of enforcing house rules. Their job, to monitor other kids, rat them out for infractions. Uh, Ricci considered them Elon's law enforcement. They continuously recorded the names and actions of every kid in every room. Different expediters assigned to different rooms, usually stationed by a door to make sure you didn't run away. Expediters uh, who worked the graveyard shift were called night owls. They made sure no one escaped at night. Expediters also monitored phone calls. They listened to your phone calls. Uh, they went over your mail. Incoming mail was read before you got to read it. Outgoing mail was censored. You know, try and tell your parents that you're being abused. Try and cr cry for help. Mm -mm. That mail goes right in the fucking trash. Now you're in more trouble. Very cultish practice there. Uh, very unethical. All phone lines in Elan first went through a switchboard inside a trailer within the complex. An operator controlling the switchboard would connect a student with their parents on the other end of the phone line. Students were given only a short amount of time on the phone. And the entire time the student would be talking, expediters and or staff, you know, listening in on the call. If the student said anything bad about Elan or tried to inform their parents of the abuse, the operator would immediately disconnect and the student would be severely punished. How disturbing is that? right? What if you're being abused? And many were. They, they, they made it so hard for you to report that to the outside world. Above expediters were department heads. Department heads were managers and strengths. They ran one of those five offices I mentioned earlier, right? Like you could be a department head in charge of the kitchen, kind of. Above the department head was the shingle. A shingle uh, would be your boss if you were a department head. A shingle would check in on other department heads, make sure shit's running smooth. And then above the shingle was the coordinator on duty, the COD. The COD was during their shift, uh, pretty much boss of the house. They would talk with uh, adult paid staff, report things. Uh, they were accountable for everything that went on in their house. Above that was re-entry. 
You went to work in reentry as a junior staff. Staff were divided into directors, assistant directors, and just staff. And teens could graduate to staff and essentially work for free at Elon until they either went home uh, or turned 18 and left the program. Or turned 18 and stayed around. Sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. Many did this. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, quite often, apparently, when Elon kids became staff and turned 18, they stayed, became paid staff. Uh, a lot of people who worked at Elon were former Elon students, which is troubling because literally none of those staff had ever uh, received any formal therapeutic education at all. Okay, now they have a little bit of the lay of the land. Let's back up, talk about what life was like here overall. Uh, every freedom from when one could use the bathroom to whether uh, you, know, you could look outside or not, uh, you know, to when one could speak, sit down, shower, eat, look at someone else was taken away. When you arrived at Elan, you were left utterly powerless and subservient to Elan's system of draconian tyranny. Violating any of Elan's many rules was called guilt. A guilt, no matter how small or insignificant, was punished severely, often. Elan's uh, list of forbidden activities was often arbitrary, subjective, and ridiculous, set up to make sure that you always could be punished. Uh, guilt's included, but by no means were listen, uh, limited to talking too quietly, talking too loudly talking to someone without proper authorization, talking to a non-strength while being a non-strength, talking too much, not talking enough, sex, which did not necessarily mean what that word implies, talking to or even looking at someone of the opposite gender in a way perceived as flirtatious could be considered a sex guilt. Uh, looking directly at someone of the opposite sex for any reason could be interpreted as a guilt. Being thought to be attracted to someone or admitting being attracted to someone, having a crush on someone, guilt. Looking outside when you should be focusing on some exercise, guilt. Looking at the floor, guilt. Having negative body language, guilt. Reacting to insults being dished out while playing that stupid fucking insane synonym game, guilt. You just have to, you know, sit there and take it or stand there and take it. Slouching, yawning, guilt. Reading or writing, drawing, not falling asleep, sleeping too long, laughing at a joke made by someone of a higher rank, doing poorly on academics, feeling tired, eating after designated mealtimes, not eating, rolling your eyes, attempting to run away, smiling without permission, not smiling enough, making any sort of physical contact, even shaking hands, having bad thoughts, showing or voicing dissent, on and on and on. I did not add any of my bullshit to that list. This is all so fucked. Uh, so much bullshit designed to break you down, to make you fail, to train you to ask permission for everything, train you to be mindless and subservient. These rules were, of course, impossible to follow, and that was the point. Alon was big on punishing you, a lot, breaking you down. Just like the Puritans, you know, they wanted to beat the devil out of you. Elon wanted to break your teen spirit, beat your personality out of you, remold you into something different. Or maybe just break you. It feels that way sometimes. Oftentimes, students would be ordered to write down their guilt on paper. Guilt such as being attracted to someone or feeling reluctance to completing tasks. Residents had to write down every thought, show it to the administration, who would use this sensitive information to humiliate or blackmail them later with. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, reminds me of uh, accusations of Scientologists doing the same thing with sensitive information revealed during auditing sessions. Expediters carefully observed individual students for signs of guilt and would write down every infraction in a notebook and turn it over to the administration. The clipboards were always full of infractions committed by students. Nobody went today without committing at least a few guilts. In fact, if an expediter did not report enough guilts to satisfy the administration, they themselves would then be severely punished highly incentivized to just to say that you were doing a bunch of shit, you know, wrong. If they could be punished by getting knocked, uh, you know, by uh, down to a worker, they'd have to, you know, or sorry, if they were punished, you know, these various levels, you could be knocked down to lower levels, 
right? Maybe you're an expediter. You don't report enough people. Then you get knocked down to work. You got to work your way back up to expediter. People are constantly like in this cycle of, you know, they go up a few levels and get knocked down. They try and go up a few levels and they got knocked down. All guilt, no matter how seemingly insignificant or small, was punished. Punishments for guilt were called learning experiences or LEs. They were built usually on abject humiliation. Right? You weren't being punished. No, come on. It's just a learning experience. Uh, for instance, those who tried to escape from Milan were designated split risks. And split risks, uh, they didn't even have to actually attempt to escape. Being sad, looking outside, uh, you know, having someone think that you're thinking about escaping. <laughs> That's, that could get you deemed a split risk. Teens who were designed split risks were given shoes without laces and forced to wear bright yellow shirts and skimpy little pink shorts to embarrass them and to have them stand out. One of the many degrading costumes Alon kids forced to wear. Uh, students who did poorly on their academics were forced to wear uh, dunce caps or humiliating signs listing their offenses. Uh, they wear this, these things all day long. They were uh, subjected to verbal abuse by their peers and teachers who would call them stupid, lazy, whatever vile shit came to their minds. You know, classic empowering therapy. <laughs> Uh, if a student cried too much, they'd be forced to wear a diaper, uh, a baby bonnet, suck on a binky. Uh, one girl on this Elan doc, I watched this really good documentary called The Last Stop. It's free on YouTube. Had to wear a headdress made of tampons, color to look bloody because she'd admitted to having sex in therapy and getting syphilis. So they shamed the fuck out of her. I'm sure that really helped turn this uh, quote unquote troubled teen's life around. Uh, how, how do you twist your mind around to consider that to be therapy? Beyond me. If a student did something terrible like a uh, smile without permission, he or she would sometimes relegated, be relegated to a shot down duty, it was called. They'd be forced to do menial jobs all day long, such as mopping floors, scrubbing trash cans, washing dishes, cleaning urinals, uh, maybe doing that for like six, seven, eight hours nonstop with nothing but a toothbrush. Then there were general meetings. Oh, here we go. One of the worst forms of punitive humiliation at Elan. Uh, these meetings were held all the time. These meetings 100% derived from Synanon's, you know, the game. When a student committed a guilt, a school administrator could uh, have the option of yelling general meeting. And then the entire student body would convene in the dining room in front of the unfortunate student. They would bring the student, they'd have to stand in this designated place. They'd put a little broomstick directly in front of them, just, you know, uh, inches in front of their toes. And then behind, on the other side of that broomstick, uh, all the other students would gather facing them. And then the administrator would yell, get your feelings off. Then each and every student in the room, right, other than the person being yelled at, would launch into a screaming, shrieking, deafening torrent of abuse at this unfortunate teen, mocking, degrading, insulting, uh, just, you know, vile, vulgar, whatever, just right into their face, inches away from their face. They would scream in groups of four or five, however many could squeeze into the, the length of the broom. They would stand as close to the broom as possible. And, you know, they'd scream for several minutes. Then they'd go to the back of the line and a new group would start screaming at them. 50, 60 kids would scream at you. Numerous former students talked about this in the documentary, how terrifying it was, especially the first time they saw it. Uh, when the administer, administrator yelled for the kids to get their feelings off, kids would like jump out of their desk. Chairs are falling over, be pandemonium. They're running from wherever they're standing, running right up to the offending student, standing right behind that broomstick, just screaming the worst shit they could think of at this kid. And this would go on uninterrupted for like 40 minutes. Didn't matter if the teen broke down crying, begged for them to stop, which they often did. General meetings happened according to the former students I listened to every single fucking day, usually multiple times a day. And not participating in a general meeting uh, was considered a guilt. And then you would be on the receiving end of the general meeting, right? It was a highly punishable offense. You had to join in on the abuse or you got abused. You know, you had to scream a bunch of horrible shit at your fellow residents every day. Uh, it could add months to your stay to not do this. Liz Arnold, who was a student in 1979, remembered watching a house full of teens berate a weeping girl who had just wet her pants one day. The girl's name was Kim. Moments before, 
She'd been spanked with a paddle in front of all her fellow students, by her fellow students. She then curled into a ball, and then students began to berate her, as the general was called, you know, called into order. Just saying stuff like, I'm not making this up, just, you know, just screaming stuff like, you fucking bitch, hope you die, you fucking whore, you fucking fuck up. Uh, these are quotes from this. Uh, nothing was off limits when it came to screaming at a student and a general. I hope you fucking die, you worthless slut. Fuck you, you piece of shit. No wonder your family hates you, you ugly whore. Like, just the meanest shit. Uh, nothing was off limits. Picture Lord of the Flies. If there were some adults, you know, with those lost kids on the island, and the adults were fucking evil and just wanted the kids to be more savage. Kids would have legit nervous breakdowns while being screamed at. Uh, Liz Arnold, the new resident joining in on the screaming, had arrived in 1978 after a suicide attempt because her parents, uh, or, you know, caused her parents to seek professional help. Liz soon joined in on the students screaming. Uh, some of the people in the mob were dressed in tinfoil, diapers, uh, shirts that read hooker. Uh, some had signs around their necks that read, I'm an emotional vampire, or ask me why I'm a baby, or confront me as to why I'm a whore. So fun. What a great thing for a young woman's self-esteem. What great therapy. Uh, another costume talked about in the in the doc was uh, uh, that teen girls had to wear. They'd dress up like, quote-unquote, streetwalkers uh, when they would admit to having a sexual past. Many of the girls forced to dress like this had been raped or molested in their past, often by family members uh, prior to being committed in Elan, and now they're being slut-shamed, right? What great therapy. Great victim shaming. What a great way to re-traumatize these poor kids. Uh, within a few minutes, Kim, the girl being screamed at, was semi-catatonic. She just stared off into the distance, right? Wearing those urine-soaked pants, butt throbbing from being paddled uh, and just waited for it to all be over. What a fucking nightmare. Now let's talk about how your day was structured at Elan. A typical day at Elan was divided into three parts, school, sleep, and the program. The name for Elan's unique brand of therapy. Uh, unlike most American schools, which run between 8 a.m., 3 p.m. roughly, Elan school classes would last from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. after a long day of abuse and chores. It was not by accident. Uh, Joe Ritchie understood that teenagers could be much more susceptible uh, to suggestion and easier to control if they were constantly sleep-deprived. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, I wonder if Ritchie set it up on Jim Jones, right? That cult leader knew all too well. Do you remember how powerful sleep deprivation could be when it came to controlling people? Uh, also, actual education was not prioritized at Elan. Teachers had no more accreditation there than the counselors. Uh, it was like being homeschooled by idiotic, sadistic monsters. Uh, numerous residents talked about coming out of a lawn being way behind their peers education-wise, like maybe uh, freshman-level high school education. That's awesome. You know, go in because you're likely struggling, get verbally and physically abused for a couple years, then come out totally unprepared for life and a good career. Way to go, Joe Ritchie, you fucking douche. Uh, I wish you weren't dead, only so I could fantasize about you hearing me shit on your life's work. Uh, back to a lawn daily life. According to a former student, non-strengths had to shower at night. Strengths were able to shower in the morning. Uh, most showers were between two to four minutes long per person. Any longer, uh, you know, you get in trouble. You have to scrub shower or toilets for a sponge or with a sponge for hours uh, as a punishment for not washing yourself fast enough. A person called the Razor Rabbit was responsible for getting everyone showered, shaved, teeth brushed, et cetera, and the given amount of hygiene time, that little clipboard, everything's monitored. Person was called the Razor Rabbit because along with being in charge of the bathroom, uh, you know, they're also in charge of razors. They would hand them out, collect them when you were done. They would hand out the toothpaste, toothbrushes. They would dole you out a tiny little squirt of shampoo, conditioner, et cetera. Every aspect of your life was controlled in a lawn. Uh, you couldn't even hold a shampoo bottle. You just like a normal person. You get in trouble, you know, if you ask for more shampoo. Uh, Elan had designated meal times called meal kicks for students. And these meal times, ludicrously short. Officially, you would get five to eight minutes to eat your meal. 
but often you would, uh, in, pra- in practice, you'd get like one to four minutes. Students were served food according to rank. So many times new students wouldn't even get a chance to receive their food before the mealtime ended. Uh, eating after mealtimes was considered a guilt. You know, you could be punished <laughs> again. Everything's punishment. Many students would have to go to class hungry, exhausted, sleep deprived, just the way Richie liked it. And students, it seemed for the most part, worked really hard to not rebel against all this because they just desperately wanted to graduate. They wanted to go through all the levels and just get the fuck out of there. But almost no one ever did. Most never left until adulthood. Contrary to what Alon's marketing materials implied, uh, sources say that less than 10% of residents ever graduated. Less than 10% of residents ever completed the program in the uh, marketed average time of 24 months or earlier. After school ended at 11 p.m., students would be sent to their rooms, which were military-style barracks with bunk beds. The night owls would wait outside. Uh, They would monitor the dorm rooms. They would shine flashlights across the bunk beds, count and recount students all night long to ensure them that no one ran away. If you fell asleep as a night owl, you'd be a guest. That's right. You'd be punished. (laughs) You'd be punished. Yep, you you get it. Let's talk about some other needless forms of Elan punishment. If the administration felt that object humiliation suffered through general meetings was unsatisfactory to punish a kid, the school would add some physical punishment, often did. Like with general meetings uh, uh, that I mentioned, the school forced students to administer physical punishment to each other. Sometimes a teen would be told to bend over and then every other student would spank them as hard as they could with like a clipboard or maybe like a ping pong paddle. Some administrators would drill holes into paddles. Uh, use those, you know, blood would spill during spankings. It was fucking sadistic. Uh, students who, quote, acted crazy could be f- forced to wear straight jackets, sometimes for days, uh, maybe locked in a small room for weeks, even months, called the corner, where they would be forced to sit up straight or be physically beaten. Uh, they could only urinate or defecate in a bucket in the room, a bucket which would sometimes be emptied onto their head. So much great therapy going on here. It all makes so much sense. You know, it reminds me of when I went to therapy as a kid. And my therapist was like, hey, Danny, Danny, if you don't feel comfortable talking about the feelings, you know, you're having about your parents' divorce, then I'm, Danny, I'm going to need you to shit in that bucket and I'm going to dump that shit in your head. And if you don't want to do that, I'm, I'm just going to have to shit on you. Uh, at least one kid, according to the last stop doc I watched, spent six months straight in the corner. Sometimes the teens would be subjected to something even uh, more disgusting called electric sauce. A treatment, this electric sauce that consisted of having a bucket filled up with trash, urine, cigarettes, mustard, dirty water, ketchup, rotten food, human feces, animal feces, fucking whatever, and then they'd pour that on their head. What, what school of psychi- psychiatric thought did that come from? Was that uh, Victor Frankl's logotherapy? Maslow's School of Humanistic Psychology? Uh, uh, B.F. Skinner. Behaviorism. Yeah, probably. That must be it. Uh, pretty sure uh, these uh, you know, more insane forms of punishment uh, evolved after that co-founder, Dr. Gerald Davison, was long gone. My guy, I hope. Uh, the worst, most dangerous punishment a student could be subjected to was known as the ring. The ring, the most feared punishment in Elan, as it should have been. If a student really drew the wrath of an administrator, they would be forced to physically fight other students, as in multiple other students. Sometimes a teen would even have to fight their big brother, big sister. Elan was careful to ensure that teens were angry, itching for violence when they competed in the ring, Right. For instance, if a non-strength was caught trying to escape, his big brother or sister would be punished by being forced to do manual labor. This was part of an effort to anger the big brother or sister so that they would be more willing to fight their companion in the ring later. Alon made sure that all the rage the teens felt at having to live in this fucking insane asylum uh, was directed at each other and not the administrators who were literally torturing them. In the ring, fights were advertised as entertainment for the house. Moderators and umpires would give play-by-play updates on the matches as if they were fucking sportscasters covering a football game. 
Uh, some administrators even cast bets, placed bets on individual matches, wagered money on how many opponents uh, a punished student could fight through before being beaten themselves. In a typical match, the punished student, known as the bully, whether or not they were actually a bully, will be given boxing gloves and a mouth guard, be surrounded by the entire student body of Elan, who will be jeering, insulting them, right, screaming at them, degrading them with vile comments. The bully would be forced to literally fist fight numerous other opponents in front of their peers, as many as it took, until, until they were beaten into total submission. Right? The bully was never given time to rest. They would fight an endless stream of fresh opponents. If one opponent got tired or got beaten up, like if you knocked one opponent down or out, another opponent would just immediately step and take their place and start swinging on you. Pretty soon, the bully would be bloodied, beaten, senseless. Uh, even then, the matches still would not end. The bully would continue being pummeled and pounded by numerous angry, repressed, rage-filled opponents goaded on by the administration and other students. If they were unable to stand, other students would sometimes hold up the bully so that they could keep getting punched repeatedly by other opponents. Again, real-life Lord of the Flies shit, but more evil. It's, it's like fucking Fight Club. If the number one rule of Fight Club was that no one wanted to be in Fight Club, the ring was by no means limited to boys, girls, even some allegedly who were pregnant forced to fight as well, sometimes with other boys, uh, be beaten just as badly. Uh, the brutality of the ring took a terrible to toll on the students. Some reportedly suffered permanent brain damage from these fights. Uh, up to 39 former Elan residents later committed suicide. At least one kid literally beaten to death in the ring. More on him later in the timeline. Another insane punishment employed uh, at Elan, you know, was one we already talked about. Yeah, the, the, the corner. Uh, that was when, you know, uh, a, a kid not conforming uh, with the general population, they wouldn't be alone for that. They would have a support person placed with them. The support person uh, would be expected to physically restrain them if they tried to leave the corner. Oh, my God. They'd have to put the rest of the kid to the floor if they needed to, put plastic restraints on them if needed to. Uh, according to the survivors, uh, usually there was at least one student in the corner at all times. If the support person took their eyes off this person in the corner, uh, if, if the student self-harmed when they weren't looking— uh, the support person will be held responsible and then punished, often put in the corner themselves. Just constant, insane, over-the-top punishment. That was the Elan way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when a student turned 18, they were finally given the option to sign out, to leave. But Elan would not make that process easy. Even when they were adults, since the student was legally uh, under their own custody at the age of 18 in the U.S., uh, they could choose to leave Elan at, you know, under their own free will at that time, but the staff would try to convince them that signing out made them a coward, afraid of change. They would, you know, not give them the papers they needed to get out. They would not offer them to take them out. You know, just constantly have other students guilt trip them into staying. Very culty again. Uh, if you demanded your papers too much, they would uh, send you to the corner, even though you were adult, were an adult who was free to leave. Uh, was all of this illegal as fuck? Yes, but it still happened. Now they have a taste of what Alon was all about. The insanity. All the shit being done to students. Some of whom were only there because they had shitty intolerant parents or nowhere else to go. Now, let's jump uh, back into the timeline. 1975, Illinois state officials finally remove some kids from Milan. They remove 11 kids from Milan alleging mistreatment. Illinois courts would stop ordering youth to attend Milan that year, uh, though Maine health officials performed, or when Maine health officials performed their own investigation, they ruled that the therapy was innovative, appropriate, and beneficial though. Innovative? Yes. Appropriate? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, beneficial, murky at best. Some kids did later say that they thought Alon saved them, but again, they didn't need to be saved this way. Uh, 1977, 15-year-old Stephen Smith is sent to Alon. He'll later recount his experience from the Maine State Prison, where he served a 10-year sentence for burglary. 
Uh, he re- recalled his experiences uh, for uh, Mar- Maura Curley, who was writing the biography of Joe Ritchie. Stephen had been a ward of the state since the age of six when his father signed over custody of Stephen and his sisters after their mother was sent to prison for robbery. At 15, he was sensitive, withdrawn, read books all the time, hated school because the other kids had perfect families. Uh, you know, it seemed childish and immature to him. Circumstances led him to going to a lawn involved in altercation with the neighbor. He shot a neighbor in the butt with a BB gun after the neighbor supposedly kicked his dog. A social worker then gave him the choice of going to jail or a lawn. He chose a lawn because he thought it sounded like a summer camp in the main woods. And he later said, when I first got there, I couldn't believe it. Everybody was screaming and beating on each other. I had to sit in these groups. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I felt that I was misdiagnosed. For one thing, I didn't have a drug problem. Most of the kids that were in there, I guess were in there for drugs because I'd be sitting in these groups and they'd want me to talk about what drugs I was doing, what I was hooked on. And I would say, listen, I don't have any of that. And they'd all say, oh yeah, sure. As if I was denying it. They'd ask me if I hated my mother. They'd take out my file, read it in front of everyone in the group, say things about my mother, talk about her criminal record. I didn't dig that. So I just didn't say anything back. Then when I shut up, they accused me of intimidating the group, said I was doing some violent act against the group members for not opening up. I was making people hostile at me. So every once in a while, they'd set up a general meeting and then throw me in the boxing ring sometimes until I lost. So I just used to try to run away all the time. It's the only thing I ever did, try to run away every chance I got. I tried about seven times, but they always caught me because they had this posse that would go out. If they caught someone, they'd be rewarded by Richie. The first time I met Joe Richie was at a general meeting that was called by a guy named Jeff Gottlieb. I tried to run away again and Joe Richie came in. I'll never forget it because he made me feel really worthless. You know, like I was an absolute nothing. He came in and I was called up along with a girl named Nancy and another girl named Marie, two guys named Ray and Johnny and another kid named Sean. So when Joe Ritchie came into the house, we were all sitting down around a table and he announced, we have some cancer in this house and any good surgeon knows the best way to get rid of cancer is to cut it out before it spreads. Then he called all of us up to the front of the house, asked everybody else if they had any feelings for us And then we all got screamed at. Then they put us in the boxing ring, you know? Then at the end of the meeting, Joe Ritchie says, now we're going to put you upstairs in one of the rooms. It was a room about six feet by 10 feet. They boarded up the windows, boarded up the door, and locked us in. And then Joe said, whatever goes on in there, goes on. What the fuck? And he continues, it was July. I know it was in July because it was my 16th birthday the next day. It was horrible. Six of us all stuck in there together. The guys, Ray and Johnny, would take turns beating each other. Ray would pound his head until he got tired. And then they'd take turns having sex with the two girls. One of them didn't care, but the other girl didn't want to, but they made her. Sean and Ray would keep her food, and that's how they got to her. The day I turned 16, I was sitting in the corner, and I mentioned it was my birthday. And Sean picked me up and said, oh, it's your birthday? I have something to give you. He started to hit me in the face and stuff, and then, well, he raped me in there. After Sean did that stuff with me, he made me do it with the others. Between that time and one other time, I think it had a lot to do with me not having normal relationships with girls. It really screwed me up. And during the past years, I've gone from blaming my mother or my social worker, Mrs. Daly, for what happened to me at Elan, but I realized it was really Joe Ritchie's fault. He didn't care what happened to us in the room or anywhere else. He was just in it for the money and he didn't care about kids. He was running a business and that's all it was. Holy shit, he wasn't just running a business. He was getting off. What a fucking sadistic motherfucker. Just lock a bunch of teens in a room, tell them whatever happens, happens. You know, anything goes, just ignore them. Uh, In the doc I watch, a former staff member talks about how she thinks that she really did a lot of good for these kids working there. Uh, She worked there for years and years. And it came off as such a rationalization. 
Like it was just too hard for her to admit that she was a piece of shit, that she'd been a monster amongst many other monsters running some type of teen pain factory. Uh, and Joe Ritchie, in literally every interview I watched of this guy, just comes across as a vile, arrogant douche, the most punchable face. Uh, he just looks mean. If you told me he was a serial killer, I'd be like, oh yeah, I believe that. Uh, Steven detailed other punishments in this interview saying, I'd have to push this wheelbarrow down to the lake in the summer, about a mile while wearing a winter coat. And I'd have to get rocks out of the water, fill up the wheelbarrow, bring it back up again, then empty them out, then fill the wheelbarrow back up, go back down to the water. Other times I'd dig ditches, fill them up again. The whole time there'd be one or two people watching and hollering for me to hurry up. It was totally meaningless. And this was all just because I wouldn't talk in groups or I'd try to run away. This is like uh, Siberian fucking gulag shit. Uh, one time Joe Ritchie was there and he said he was sick of my shit trying to run away and stuff. I tried to talk to some people, came up from Chicago to do some kind of investigation. And I think that's why he was pissed. I never talked to them though. Anyhow, I got a cowboy ass kick then. That was when they took you and threw you from room to room, bouncing you off the walls. All the residents would drag you around, digging you with their hands, punching you, spitting in your face. It was worse in the ring. It was really vicious. This shit is insane. And it's not just Steven saying this. This is the one person after another, after another saying this. Uh, when he was asked about the differences between maximum security prison and Elan, Steven said, Elan's much, much worse. Here, there's a lot of shit, but I get a chance for some solitude to read. I'm going to college. I've also gotten to learn woodworking and make some money in the prison store. At Elan, there was nothing positive. It was pure hell. You know, the worst thing is the judge that sentenced me here lectured to me saying I blew the opportunity I had at Elan. I don't understand how the courts can legitimize a guy like Richie who has harmed so many mixed up kids. Yeah, Joe Richie, man, made millions off Elan. Uh, rumors that he bribed a lot of judges, paid a lot of people off. Uh, after a few years of its success, he'd strut through Elan in a leather coat, fedora, aviator sunglasses, his new silver Mercedes parked out front. Apparently loved to play the role of big man on campus. Have students look at him. These poor students, residents, whatever. Like he was a rock star. Yeah. 1978, 1978, uh, my dad was away from my mom for several long chunks of time. And I have to wonder if he was working at one, at, at, at Elan as one of those sadistic staff members. Now, listen, I don't have any proof or anything. It's just, I don't know, just putting the story together just resonated with me in a weird way. Uh, you know, I just, I put it together that he wasn't around that whole year. It just wouldn't shock me if I found out he was behind, you know, part of this. I just, I just wish I could verify his 1978 whereabouts. I really do. If any of you listening, uh, can pin down where Daniel Neal Cummins born April 2nd, 1954 in Los Angeles County. Uh, if you can just let me know where he was, was he at the Elon school? Please let me know. Uh, run, running dad gag. If you're confused, by the way, don't think too much about it. Uh, and actually while we're on the subject of my dad, uh, I've, I've already derailed the narrative a bit. I needed a break from all that fucking abuse. Uh, I think now's a good time to toss in one final sponsor. Sorry about that. Uh, a new organization of mine, actually going to use my show to, you know, sponsor my own uh, kind of organization here that I'm, I'm pretty proud about. Today's Time Soak is brought to you by DadWatch, a 501-3C nonprofit dedicated to solving dad-related crimes. DadWatch stands for Dads Are Disappearing Where All the Corpses Hide. Hi, I'm Dan Cummins, DadWatch founder. Did you know that roughly 50,000 people go missing in the U.S. each year and are never found? And that many dads conveniently can't remember exactly what they were doing even last week? that a coincidence? We here at Dad Watch, we don't think so. Where was your dad last year? Last month? Where was your dad on July 2nd, 1937, when Amelia Earhart went missing? Dead? Hmm, convenient, you know? Not born yet, whatever? Where was your dad on Monday, May 30th, 2005, when Natalie Holloway disappeared? You don't know? That's troubling. 
I don't know where my dad was that day. Literally, no idea. Idaho, Aruba, I don't know, and he's not talking. Where was my dad on the night of September 7th, 1996, when Tupac Shakur was shot in Las Vegas? I don't know. But I do know that my dad used to live in Las Vegas and that he didn't like me listening to, quote, gangster rap. Look, I'm not saying my dad killed Tupac, but I can't say for sure that he didn't. Like a lot of people with dads, at the end of the day, I I just want answers. We here at Dad Watch are just trying to do what's right. And what's right is probably putting dads behind bars where they belong. And I'm back. (laughs) Uh, that's so funny for me. My dad now knows uh, about my accusations. He thinks it's kind of funny, I think. Uh, he definitely thinks I'm insane. Uh, back to Alon. 1978, the dismembered body uh, Mike of Michael J. Little Joe Napolitano, a New England underworld figure, is found in the trunk of a car in New York City. The killing was later tied to the Patriarcha family, the very same organized crime outfit in New England that had a big investment in Scarborough Downs. Joe Ritchie would soon be buying Scarborough Downs rumored to be connected to the Patriarcha family. Several people who were known to have come into contact with Joe Ritchie during the 1970s later turned up dead under suspicious circumstances. Whether Ritchie had any involvement involvement in Napoletano's demise, still unknown, but the FBI considered him a person of interest, saying there was evidence that Ritchie had set up Napoletano for a hit. Uh, The big bank of Wells Fargo would deny Ritchie the ability to bank with them because they suspected his involvement with organized crime. This is uh, Joe Ritchie. 1979, 33-year-old Joe Ritchie buys Scarborough Downs at a horse racing track for just under a million dollars. Around this time, allegations from his employees that Ritchie was abusive, both physically and emotionally, start to surface. Uh, He also gets sued three times by female employees for sexual harassment and also for death threats. More accusations of mob connections tossed around. A lot of accusations about him bribing various people in the state to not investigate Elan, to place kids in Elan. Uh, the extent of Ritchie's connections to the criminal underworld will never be fully known. When the FBI first publicly links Ritchie to the mafia, uh, that causes KeyBank to cut off his line of credit, and then he sues them for defamation. And then he wins fucking $15 million. Sometimes life is not fair. Uh, the jury rules in his favor. I have to think, like, did he bribe him? There's a lot of evidence that he did that kind of shit. Uh, maybe the mafia bribed him. 1979, NBC News broadcasts a special report about Elon and visits the campus to talk to staff, students, and even Joe Ritchie himself. Though the news outlet voiced some concern regarding the tactics used by Elon and students, NBC also constantly reassured its audience that these treatments were intended to help, not harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they titled the report for the, ch- for the child's own good, <laughs> Jesus Christ, and painted Ritchie and Elon as mentors and teachers seeking to rehabilitate troubled teens. 60 Minutes would uh, also air a segment about Joe Ritchie and his Elan school, like the NBC report, 60 Minutes painted Elan and its founder in a positive light, calling the pra- them practitioners of a revolutionary new type of therapy that could steer troubled teens back into the right path. Dude must have felt above the law about this time, right? All the media exposure is great for business, more parents than ever before, sending their teens to be fucked up in this weird-ass fight club fucking Thunderdome. Uh, but also 1979, the tides would also would start to turn against Elan, finally, bit by bit. A district of Massachusetts, the first to ban sending any children to Elan, citing abusive and cruel treatment. Uh, in Illinois, state officials pull a teen out of Elan. Uh, you know, another teen from Illinois gets pulled out in response to allegations of, you know, mistreatment. They caution parents about sending their children there. In 1982, uh, the ring takes the life of 15-year-old Phil Williams. Williams had come to Elan from a broken family. When Williams was nine, his father was sent to prison after beating his wife with a pipe, leaving her brain damaged and in a vegetative state. As a result, Williams grew up in foster care with his sister, and then he was sent to Elan because of his constant fits of rage. 
And Elon Williams drew the wrath of the administration for talking back to staff. And then on December 27th, two days after Christmas, 1982, he's put in the ring and beaten so badly, he is actually beaten to death. The school tells the Williams family he died of a brain aneurysm. No charges ever filed against the administrators. Despite the horrific death of Phil Williams, Elon continues to use the ring as a form of punishment for more than two decades, for two more decades, excuse me, until 2001. In 1986, Joe Ricci puts himself into the political spotlight, running unsuccessfully, thank God, for governor of Maine as a Democrat. This piece of shit would run again also unsuccessfully in 1998. Ricci painted himself as an outsider who spoke up for the working people against the influence of big business. Probably better than painting himself as a mobster who made millions torturing troubled teens. What would those uh, campaign ads have looked like? You know, if he's a little more truthful. Hey, my name is Joe Ricci. I'm a Democratic gubernatorial candidate for right here in Maine, the Pine Tree State. And if you want big business to take a beating, <laughs> I'm your guy. I'll beat down big business harder than I forced some of the kids trapped in my school prison to beat down other often smaller kids. I'll stand for the working man longer than I make isolated, confused teenagers stand in the corner covered in their own feces as punishment for smiling too much or perhaps taking an extra dollop of shampoo. I don't reach you with lower taxes. I'll lower them even lower than the self-esteem of the many kids I forced to wear degrading costumes and be screamed at and be beaten on a daily basis. All on the parents' dime. <laughs> Joe Ricci for governor. If I can't beat my Republican opponent, I guess I'll just have to beat some more kids or something. Ha! <laughs> Forget about it. It's your choice. What's wrong with me? I'm back now. Uh, January of 2000, Lon finally gets exposed for the heinous shit show it was. That month, the state of Connecticut charges Michael Skagel with the murder of 15-year-old Martha Moxley. Skagel was a nephew of the late Robert F. Kennedy, and the case made national headlines. Skagel was also a former Elon student who had admitted to killing Moxley during some group therapy session, slash, we're going to scream at you if I can tell you you're a piece of shit, uh, session at Elon years earlier. Michael, prior to this confession, allegedly bragged about killing Moxley, telling two other Elon students he had bludgeoned the 15-year-old girl to death, pulled off her clothes, touched her sexually, masturbated near her body. The crime had taken place 25 years earlier, 1975. On the night before Halloween, hanging out with friends, and then she was found uh, dead the following morning. Why hadn't Alon reported the confession? Uh, probably because they didn't want any follow-up questions to uncover all the horrific abuse going on there. The case against Skagel, almost entirely based off the testimony of his classmates at Alon, so Skagel and his attorneys put Alon in the spotlight. Although it was Skagel, not Alon on trial, Richie saw his school gain a lot more national attention, and not good this time. For the first time, the abusive history of Alon publicized, reported on by the media. The public learned of the living hell that was Elon via Michael Skagel's story. He'd spent two years there. He'd been beaten, abused, forced to compete numerous times in the ring. He'd run away twice, been captured both times, after which he was humiliated, uh, severely punished. While the defense was using these stories in an attempt to gain sympathy for Skagel, it had the secondary effect of raising public awareness about all the shit going on in Elon. Uh, you know, this was all being broadcast in the age of the internet, and former Elon classmates started to take notice. Former students at Elon found in the internet a platform from which they could tell their stories to the whole world on chat rooms, websites. Uh, these survivors published their unique stories about the systemic abuse that they'd endured at the hands of Joe Ritchie and Elon's administration. Suddenly, the ugliness of Elon being revealed in a massive, impossible to ignore way, the abuse no longer a secret, in the face of mounting suspicion, Ritchie publicly denies that Skagel had ever confessed to the murder while at Elon dismissing it as an absurd accusation. Uh, two classmates of Skagel's from Milan, however, testified that Skagel did in fact confess to the murder while at the school and that administrators for sure knew about it. 
Would all of this get Ricci finally sent to prison? No. But good news, he would die. Uh, less than six months later, in June of 2000, Ricci is diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Couldn't, couldn't uh, happen to a better guy. Uh, the egomaniacal, sadistic multimillionaire who had once appeared inv invincible, now suddenly bedridden with a terminal illness. He's put on aggressive chemotherapy. Doesn't help. The cancer spread throughout his body. Uh, nothing doctors could do. And on January 29th, 2001, barely six months after his diagnosis, Joseph J. Ricci dies in a hospital in Bangor, Maine from complications due to lung cancer at 54 years old. His death, a miserable end for an even more miserable man. After Ricci's death, his second wife, Sharon Terry, takes over as the head of Elan. Terry had inherited quite a mess from Ricci, and now she has to deal with the wrath of dozens of former Elan students, hell-bent on publicizing their stories, putting an end to Elan for good. As people keep testifying at Michael Skagel's trial uh, in late 2001, stories of the horrific abuse endured at Elan keep piling up. Sharon Terry needs to reform the school. Uh, she abolishes the use of the ring. Corporal punishment, however, still used at Elan. Uh, as are general meetings, other forms of mental torture. Even after Skagel is convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison for the Moxley murder, uh, though his conviction will not stick, we'll get into that in a bit, uh, the controversy around Elan does not die. On June 7th, 2002, Skagel found guilty of murdering Moxley, sentenced to those 20 years uh, to life in prison. Then in 2007, the New York State Education Department produces a scathing report that criticizes Elan's use of physical punishment and sleep deprivation. Although they had once paid tuition for special education students to attend the school, now New York decides to withdraw funding from Elan due to the abuse. About fucking time. 2011, this is taking forever, at Elan's pub, uh, as Elan's public notoriety reaches its peak thanks to dozens of Reddit users detailing years of abuse and more and more interviews come out from former students. Uh, despite all of this, despite petitions and demands from the public to shut down the institution, the school's accreditation is actually renewed by Maine officials. And again, former residents speculate that uh, these officials had been bribed. People have been bribed for years to look past all the abuse of the institution. Keep sending teens there. March 23rd, 2011, just 22 days after being re-accredited by the state of Maine, Sharon Terry does announce that Elan is closing down. Despite the license renewal, all the bad press finally dried up enrollment. Parents finally started to think, thanks to a lot of advances in parental education, that maybe sending their kids to a place to be continually verbally abused, degraded by uneducated, sadistic psychopaths was not an awesome plan. That's not actually therapy. Uh, Sharon Terry continues to deny any and all allegations of abuse, maintains that she and the school were innocent victims of a public frame-up. She said the school has been the target of harsh and false attacks spread over the internet with the avowed purpose of forcing the school to close. Uh-huh. Or you're a piece of shit. You're a monster, you self-righteous fuck. Or that. Uh, April 1st, 2011, April Fool's Day, Elan School closes its doors for good. Uh, for more than 41 years, Joe Ritchie, then Sharon Terry, the school administration, had been able to keep Elan safe from law enforcement, state agencies, and legal action. But the scrutiny, the public scrutiny, finally too much. On October 23rd, 2013, Michael Skagel, whose original trial for murder had brought Elan into the spotlight, granted a new trial by Connecticut Judge Thomas A. Bishop, who ruled that Skagel's original attorney, Michael Sherman, failed to adequately represent Skagel when he was convicted. November 21st, 2013, Skagel released on a $1.2 million bond. Uh, the Connecticut Supreme Court in 2016, in December, reinstates Skagel's murder conviction with a 4-3 majority decision, writing his conviction was a result of overwhelming evidence presented by prosecutors and that his legal representation had been adequate. But Skagel family, a lot of money, uh, 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court changed his mind yet again, vacates.
Cagle's conviction, orders a new trial. And then on October 30th, 2020, not that long ago, uh, 45 years exactly to the day uh, after Martha Moxley's murder, Chief State's Attorney Richard uh, Colangelo informed the Superior Court that Michael Skagel would not be retried after the Connecticut Supreme Court vacated Skagel's murder conviction two years earlier on the grounds that his attorney had rendered ineffective assistance when he failed to contact an alibi witness whose name had been provided by Skagel. So he's officially cleared of Martha Moxley's murder. Man, no justice for anyone at Elan, not even for the kid who confessed to a murder there. Uh, today, the Elan School is no more. The 33-acre property where the school was once located now consists of little more than abandoned buildings, decaying trailers, overgrown dirt roads. But even today, the trauma that Elan induced uh, still very much alive in those who once lived there. At least 39 former students of Elan have committed suicide since 1975. Many others live with the lifelong repercussions of the abuse they endured. Several former students have been convicted of crimes ranging from arson to murder. Others suffer from mental and social problems they attribute to the hell on earth they endured at Elan. Even those who did manage to lead successful, productive lives still suffer from the mental trauma that Elan inflicted upon them. Uh, ben Weasel, uh, the founder of the influential punk rock band Screeching Weasel, was sent to Elan as a teen where he endured more than two years of abuse and dehumanization. He says he still suffers from chronic anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia due to that experience. Uh, the administrators who ran Elan and sanctioned the brutal abuse of its students never punished. Nobody, no staff member, no teacher, no administrator, administrator ever faced any criminal charges in connection with all the shit we talked about. Uh, and as we learned, the troubled teen industry spawned from Synanon that gave birth to Elan far from dead. Even though Elan school is gone for good, there are many other similar behavioral institutions still operating across the U.S. right fucking now. Let's get out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Whew. The Elan School, a private co-ed residential behavioral modification program in Poland, Maine. One of many similar schools, one of many members of the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs. Because we as a society still can't agree on how to parent our kids, abusive shitholes like Elan still around. Uh, life at the Elan School was fucking horrific. Insane rules governed students' lives while students and staff took advantage of one another. Left every moment of every day open to the possibility of more humiliation and degradation. At uh, the top of it all was Joe Ritchie, former heroin addict with potential uh, organized crime connections who found a cash cow and capitalizing off of parents' fears for their children, found a population to exploit. The Elan School, just one of many organizations under the umbrella of the troubled teen industry. This industry includes a variety of accredited and non-accredited programs. Do the tactics of these tough love institutions ever work? I don't think so. Not really. Not overall. I don't think this particular end does justify the means. Are some kids saved in these programs from an overdose or a suicide or a lifetime of drug abuse? I mean, probably, actually, yes. But could they be saved in a much, much, much more humane way? Yes, I think so. I don't think there's any way you can justify making a girl who has been molested or any girl or any person dress like a prostitute or, or wear an I'm a whore sign. Uh, I don't think you can justify dumping literal shit on some teen's head or having a room full of 60 kids scream horrific insults at them for 40 minutes. Uh, the ring, the beatings, fuck the game, fuck Synanon, fuck Joe Ritchie and Elan are better, much more humane ways to go about all of this. There are numerous live-in treatment centers around the world where troubled teens are helped with medication. Actually, educated professionals talk to them. They're treated with both firm rules and also dignity. If you're a parent struggling with your son or daughter, you have better options than sending them to a living hell like this. First off, just, just tossing some advice out there. Uh, consider the scope of the problem. Catching your, your kid drinking a few times does not mean they're an alcoholic. 
catch them doing some blow. Doesn't mean they're a drug addict. Uh, you know, if they do need help, there are so many resources either in your community or online you can go to now. Good ones. Licensed therapists who charge on a sliding scale, free counseling services offered through the state in many places. Uh, so many resources. I love one that happens to be a sponsor of this show, you know, betterhelp.com. But there are others too. In the U.S., uh, you can start with SAS uh, or SA, substance abuse, excuse me, and mental health services administration. It's uh, SAMHSA. You can call their hotline 1-800-662-HELP. 1-800-662-HELP. They have a treatment routing service, one of so many options out there right now. You can also go to their website, samhas.gov. Uh, if you decide to go with the therapeutic boarding school, there are good ones. Just be fucking careful. There's still a serious lack of regulation and accountability for therapeutic boarding schools, even ones where poor living conditions and harmful therapeutic practices have already been reported. There's a lack of you know, standardized treatment, data on how students do after boarding school, uh, federal oversight. Some states, again, like Montana, Utah, for whatever reason, real fucking relaxed when it comes to what goes on at these places. Maybe don't send them to a place in Montana or Utah, or at least really scrutinize those places, uh, a place that could be you know, a living hell. Uh, however, many therapeutic boarding schools can and do work. You just have to do your homework. With the right combination of exercise, therapy, emotional growth, people can leave behind troubles past, uh, you know, grow up to become amazing meat sacks. The Elan School, clearly not one of the places that helped them do that, though. I feel like survivors who left the Elan School and became successful uh, persevered in spite of everything they endured, not because of it. So let's maybe try our best to be good to the world's kids, okay? If the robots are not in production yet, who else is going to take care of us when we're old and helpless? Let's head on over now to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Elon School was founded in 1974. It ran until it closed its doors voluntarily in 2011. None of its practices ever got it shut down. It was never shut down. It just closed. Oh my God. Number two, the abuse perpetrated on the students of the Elon School was nothing short of horrific. Students were punished for insane infractions that couldn't have been measured and were encouraged to uh, both verbally and physically assault their fellow students and report them to the administration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Number three, Joe Ritchie was an entrepreneur, wannabe politician, maybe mafia-adjacent person, a uh, definite piece of shit, knew full well what was going on at this school. And he must have liked it, right? He never stopped the abuse, never tried to. For years, he insisted to the outside world that the Elon School was the best thing for troubled teens. They didn't discipline, they just provided learning experiences. He had to have known it was not a good place, Right? Joe never had to see the school he founded shut his doors. He died of lung cancer in 2001. Number four, the Elon School has a connection to a very talked about unsolved murder case. The 1975 murder of 15-year-old Martha Moxley, last seen in the night before Halloween, hanging out with friends, found dead the following morning. Michael Skagel, former Elon student, charged with the crime in 1998. Trial began in 2002. He brought a lot of bad press to Elon, uh, which would eventually shut down in the face of mounting public criticism. On June 7, 2002, Skagel found guilty of murdering Moxley, sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, then his conviction vacated in 2018, then announced he would not be retried in 2020, making him officially innocent of the Moxley murder. But a lot of judges, legal experts seem to disagree strongly. A confusing case became even more confusing considering the testimony of so many abused teenagers. It may not have put a possible, uh, probable murderer behind bars, uh, but at least it got Elon's school on the map and started exposing it. And number five, new info. Do you like the author, David Sedaris? I do. I think he's very talented. His books, I think, are so funny. So funny. Like, laugh out loud funny. Such a clever, intelligent dude. Uh, do you like his sister, Amy Sedaris? Very funny as well, I think. 
uh, the star of the Comedy Central cult classic Strangers with Candy, the voice of Princess Carolyn in Netflix's BoJack Horseman, a creator and star of True TV's At Home with Amy Sedaris, been in a ton of movies, very recognizable, successful. Uh, do you know their sister of their sister, Tiffany Sedaris? Uh, she was an artist, also very talented, and she sadly, tragically took her own life on May 24th, 2013 at the age of 49. Many years earlier, she had run away as a teen and her parents responded by sending her to Ilan, where she spent two years between 1978 and 1980 uh, dealing with all the shit we laid out here today, being abused in the same ways, and it haunted her for the rest of her life. After she died, David Sedaris wrote in The New Yorker about how she told everyone it was a horrible place. He wrote, she returned home in 1980, having spent two years there. And from that point on, none of us can recall a conversation in which she did not mention it. He said she blamed her parents for Elan for the rest of her life, demanded they apologize for it over and over and over. She was never able to get over it. Tiffany Sedaris, another tragic victim of the Elan school. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Oh, the troubling teen industry has been sucked. Ah, I guess the troubling troubled teen industry. Man, hope you hope you learned a lot uh, today, you curious, beautiful bastards. I, I did putting this uh, together with Sophie and Zach. We all did. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making this episode and every episode of Time Suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie, Fact Source for Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan Keith, the art warlock, running badmagicmerch.com, uh, posting the socials. Thanks to Liz Hernandez trying to please the Zuckerberg Thought Police and get our Facebook page out of jail. Uh, thanks to all the wonderful weirdos having fun on Discord. Our Discord channel is still up. Go say hi to Beefsteak. Uh, thanks to all you spaces are playing Time Suck Trivia on the app. Congrats to round eight winner, Big Pharma, a.k.a. John Myers. Round nine started this uh, last week. Get in there and play. Have some fun. Uh, next week, the Space Lizard surprised me and voted in the topic of my grandfather, Papa Ward. Going to look into his small town life. Going to look at the man who helped shape much of who I am today. Going to look into what it must have been like for my family to homestead out in Idaho, eke out a living in a very rural place. Uh, Going to share a lot of life lessons my grandpa taught me that I think are just good for everybody to hear. And learn about, you know, uh, some Idaho history. Very different kind of episode. I hope you listen. I hope you like it. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty special. And then we'll get back to our, our bread and butter soon. After a little break from true crime, as far as serial killers, uh, we do have a couple fascinating and very dark dirt bags coming up. Uh, right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. All right, a lot, a lot of Blackwater suck updates today, as I said earlier. Uh, first update regarding Blackwater coming in from Military Meat Sack Isaac, last name redacted. Isaac Wright shares a lot of information, writing... If you wouldn't mind, dump my last name if you're using. I'd hate to piss off a potential employer. Done. Okay, I just discovered your podcast. I binged about four episodes so far while effectively under quarantine in a safe house in Phoenix, sleeping on an air mattress and eating from Amazon Fresh. Praise Bojangles for capitalism at his finest. Uh, with any luck, I'm out soon. Back to Seattle. Totally not relevant to my comments. Some of the negatives you listed are specifically why Blackwater, KBR, and numerous other agencies get hired. If a civilian or government protectee is under the guard of the army, the army is fulfilling two missions, protect the principal, A, and then B, win hearts and minds. While winning hearts and minds, drinking tea and eating dates, and my waste is uh, due to a ton of dates, lamb and sweet mint tea, plus age, they aren't effectively focused on threats to a protectee and are potentially letting people into the close protection zone. Regular army and U.S. Marine Corps contain a high number of people in a given unit that are fresh out of boot and AIT. 
think trade school for the military, on their first deployment. While they are well-trained and learn incredibly fast, they are fresh. PMCs contain a ton of retirees, left the service, uh, soldiers that have many times a ton of deployment experience and training. They also have more maturity than a 19-year-old PFC on the first overseas tour. They're trained in close protection and close protection specialists are by their very nature trained to aggressively move a protectee in and out of a danger zone. There are four problems with what happened in the last 20-ish years, though, with PMCs. One, Prince is a demagogue and potentially makes decisions, including use of force and acquisition of military gear to fulfill his personal political goals. Two, we surged PMCs to such a level under W to encourage PMCs to take on lesser trained soldiers in order to serve their God of the most honorable dead presidents. Three, PMC teams were deployed with little to no tactical support when things went wrong. And this has a direct and exponential impact on the mental state of contractors. One beheading video of Joe from Team 3 is enough to encourage you to move from safe to burst on your M4 more freely. Four, we as Americans are obsessed with movies like Rambo and The Expendables, where a few good men retired from the service do what the government and law can't. This, I think, allows a wide degree of automatic excuse for bad behavior. That's a very interesting thought that I was kind of thinking about later too. Uh, digression, potential mitigation. Uh, start paying a bounty to retain operators in the military and expand our teams and units like CID, close protection units, USMC, embassy security teams, diplomatic security service. And then there's the Delta, and then there's Delta, the Army Rangers, the Marines in general, uh, and any other component of Special Operations Command not mentioned. Let's take me. I dropped out of college to enter the service during the test war for this current mess. I came out, was a paramedic for a minute, moved to Seattle, having to take a job in telecom, which became IT, which paid way better than the Army with 20 years of service as a colonel, not that I was going to be uh, one, and also way better than a paramedic. Combine a ton of information tech IT certs uh, with happens to be a paramedic and one hell of a range score with an M16 and M4 and M9. And as a PMC, I can make insanely more than I would make at uh, a tech job. I'm not going to name the company in case you wanted that redacted too. Uh, government services, uh, roles that pay close to my salary require at least a master's and don't recognize industry certification. Even if I had the degrees necessary for senior GS roles, I'd start at half of my salary. As a contractor to the government, I can get stateside my full to a superior salary for the same role. If this role happens to be overseas in a danger zone, there's hazard or combat pay on top of that. Why not just align government hiring practices to the rest of the freaking industry? Not that I'm a government contractor now, but isn't it cheaper to pay me my real rate versus paying, say, Siemens $300,000 a year for me? And digression, right? Because then you wouldn't, yeah, you're not going to get that $300,000. Uh, that's the drive you really didn't nail. Leadership wanted people doing things they couldn't order CIA officers and the military to do. No matter how bad the uninformed issues were, the PMC issues are worse because the pesky Geneva Convention and the USCA gets in the way. If you grant immunity and offer someone $400,000 a year to hook jumper cables to someone's nipples for national security, I'm, excuse me, I'm guessing there's quite a few takers. I've worked in and out of the Middle East and Europe throughout this clusterfuck, and depending on who was president, I felt safe, embarrassed, or highly concerned and wanted uh, exfiltration ASAP. The people in the Middle East, wide and far, are gentle, kind, and hospitable people. It's unfortunate that some of our behavior had resulted in radicalizing the same people we wanted as friends. I've sat with more than one herder on a hill in loafer slacks and a dress shirt without body armor and felt perfectly safe, except for sand in my shoes. At the same time, at two in the morning, after six weeks of having bombs go off and bullets fly by your suburban, it's understandable what happens next. Safety? What safety? Lock and load. QACDC highway to hell. I don't have a fix other than to safely perform information security audits in the States until I retire now. Anyway, thanks again for the entertainment and the mind yoga. Your new listener in Phoenix, Spokane, Seattle, wherever I land next. 
Uh, well, thank you for all that info, Isaac. That was a great information dump. Uh, yes, there was so much I didn't cover despite it still being a pretty big episode. And not having any military service, there's just uh, insight I can't offer. It's so much I just, I can't really know. Uh, great point about why contractors, you know, uh, should be made, you know, uh, or paid, excuse me, just like directly. Like, why can't you pay, you know, military with lots of experience directly instead of having to go through a PMC that then takes a lot of their money and doesn't give them as much. And then they could still be under governmental control and have a lot of those advantages. And yes, interesting thoughts about how, yeah, people use the, you know, uh, governments use private military contractors to, to get around Geneva conventions and stuff. Uh, I appreciate the thought out message and, and good luck to you going forward. Now an email from discerning meat sack, Jacob Palmer, who like a lot of others, not happy with me leaving some Eric Prince information out of the episode last week. Jacob writes, I got a lot of these similar emails. Hey, suck master. Absolutely love the show. I've been a time sucker since June. Binging your show helped me get through some long, lonely days doing field research in the weird times of COVID. I'm, I'm writing to ask you why you left out the fact that Eric Prince was cheating on his dying wife with his kid's nanny. I mean, come on. Not only is that info super easy to find, but a critical thinker like yourself should have totally found someone marrying their nanny right after their wife uh, dies suspicious. Given what you've said about people who cheat on their significant others in the past, I'm really surprised you decided Eric Prince deserved a pass from any criticism on this. Uh, yes, that info is easy to find, Jacob. And it was in the original draft uh, of, of the notes from uh, uh, Sophie and from Zach. I, I did consciously take it out. I thought about putting it back in. Here was my rationale for taking it out. It, it shows up a lot on the web. Uh, Eric Prince never tried to hide it. He admitted it openly. Uh, his dying wife knew before, you know, she died. Uh, the affair shows up on a lot of lists, you know, sites, you know, like Eric Prince, five fast facts you need to know kind of stuff. Uh, and it usually comes across as a smear piece to me. In this suck, I didn't want to do a bio piece. I wanted to focus on the industry of PMCs and how Blackwater fit within that industry. How Blackwater was founded, you know, that led obviously to Eric Prince and his life and to his controversial family. But I didn't want that to be the episode's focus. I did address several things I don't like about the princes. And I just felt like if I went further in that direction, now instead of a suck on Blackwater and the PMC industry, it's it's more about a piece on uh, on Prince. I don't really care about Eric Prince, to be honest. I care about what he represents. I find Blackwater less interesting also than the overall industry it sits inside. Uh, I took out the affair because if I left it in, I felt then I would need to address it. And there's a lot of additional info out there about it that I that I can't access. Like, why did it happen? Had their marriage been crumbling for years? If Joanna had not been dying, would they have gotten a, a divorce before the affair? What was her side of it? I just, I don't know. It just seemed like a big distraction to a story that already had a lot of moving parts. That being said, I should have left it in. Uh, in hindsight, I wish I would have left it in. Uh, I do take things out of research every week and I and I add things, you know, uh, last minute to try and make the story as understandable and interesting as possible in a week as I can. Sometimes I get that process right. Sometimes I get it wrong. Uh, always get it wrong to some degree. And, and I think in this case, I got that detail wrong. So thank you for calling me out. Thanks for the message, Jacob. Uh, what, uh, another Blackwater message. Uh, more PMC food for thought from Fine Sack Will Last Name Redacted. Will writes, Dear Master Sucker, Joke Slinger, and Champion of Truth, I do not consider myself an official space lizard, but I'm a tremendous fan of your podcast and longtime fan of your stand-up. Uh, you, thank you. Uh, your jokes kept me cheerful and laughing when we were lucky enough to have fast internet in Afghanistan. Uh, and he writes, thank you for what you do. I was going to say, thank you for what you do. Uh, above all, I commend you for applying scientific methodology, evidence-based arguments, and collecting evidence through observation. I hope your time suck audience absorbs this lesson and realize any common person can become a critical thinker and evaluate information beyond face value. Also, the application of jokes is your best mnemonic device. I can't make a sandwich anymore without referring to peanut butter as peanut butter. <laughs> uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your recent Blackwater episode. As a former intelligence officer that received training from the academy, 
worked with Blackwater staff in the Middle East, and witnessed unintended consequences of their work, I found the podcast pretty fair and full of context. Ultimately, the main difficulty with PMCs is the lack of authority and accountability for which they operate. PMCs are not subject to any sort of judicial review or oversight from elected officials. The U.S. military is subject to the U.S. or UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, covering the rules of land warfare that dictate military conduct and rules of engagement. The intelligence community receives presidential findings directing intelligence activities and is subject to congressional oversight. No such structure for PMCs. The difference between an armed vigilante and public servant, soldier, law enforcement officer involved in violence of action is the direct tasking, recall, and permission of said force by the people through their elected representative and the rule of law. An ex-Navy SEAL may have tremendous personal capabilities, but without that legitimate charter to operate, their actions can become criminal. I've heard many over the years in the IC and SOF communities complain about the ROE making it harder for them to succeed as warriors. But it is those constraints set by the government of the people that legitimize what they do. That said, as you point out, PMCs are a way for elected officials to avoid attribution and accountability, and in many cases look for a quick fix. This tactic still used to this day to reduce official boots on the ground troop numbers and divert the tough job to results-oriented contractors. It's critical for all of us to hold our elected officials responsible for the actions of PMCs, the military, intelligence services, and law enforcement. Keep practicing those pronunciation guides. You do better than you think. Uh, hope to see you live on stage post-COVID. All the best to Lindsay, Kyler, Monroe, Will Bark, and P.S. Here come the spoons, motherfucker. Great advice to live by. Uh, well, thank you, Will. Yeah, thanks for pointing out how it is important that PMCs be given proper legal oversight. I do think, yeah, there uh, needs to be some overhaul that way. You know, if not, they can both end up doing what their country asked them to do and doing it well and simultaneously be blamed, shamed uh, for illegal actions, you know, they've committed, again, on behalf of our government. At the end of the day, uh, we do need to hold elected officials responsible for sometimes using PMCs to sidestep international protocols, Geneva Conventions, you know, uh, uh, human rights violations. Unless we don't care as a nation about looking just as bad as many of the so-called bad guys we go to battle against. So that is a very important food for thought. Uh, one more little Blackwater-related message, a baby one, from outstanding veteran sack Colin Evans. Colin writes, hey, suck nasty. Just finished the suck about Blackwater, and you brought up the flying tigers. My great-granddad was a crew chief for them, Leon P. Colquitt. Never got to meet him, but he was one of the originals. I don't know what he did after, but I know his service inspired me to enlist. Though I joined in peacetime, I made a lot of buddies, two of which became contract operators, one for Triple Canopy, the other for Academy. One was deployed to Afghan for a stint, told me he made 150 k that year. The other did not deploy, told me he made about half that. Just some stuff I've heard in family history. Keep on sucking, my guy. Well, thank you, Colin. Flying tigers in your blood. That's very cool. Cool connection. Uh, good for you and uh, and your service. You know, wartime or peacetime, always impressive. Keep on sucking, dude. And I will end on some laughs with the silly sucker, Joe Grindle. <laughs> Joe, I thought this was very funny. Joe writes, Dear Dan, I've been catching up on Nilder Sucks. Just started the Vlad the Impaler episode from uh, July 14th, uh, 2017. That's crazy. In the opening updates, you dismissed the idea that H.H. Holmes may have also been Jack the Ripper. You stated that the idea was solely based on Holmes' whereabouts, not being confirmed during the Ripper murders, and this was simply, simply not enough evidence. I immediately was reminded of the fact that your dad's whereabouts were likely unknown at this time as well. <laughs> Could he have been the Ripper? Love the shows. Hope you enjoyed the idea uh, that your dad joke is retro retroactively making its way into past sucks. Joe, uh, I love my dad getting uh, added to the back catalog. And yeah, no, I, I think my dad very well may have been the Jack the Ripper. You know? Dan, Dan the Ripper. It's possible. It's very possible. I don't know. I don't know where he was. He doesn't know where he was that time. Uh, thank you for the laughs and thank you for the message, everyone. 
look forward to next week's Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, thanks for listening to this Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meet Sacks. If your teen is troubled, do not send them to any Elon-esque hellhole this week. You know, and also maybe keep them away from my dad, you know, just to be extra safe. And keep on sucking. Oh, God damn it. That was supposed to be done early. Hey, Joe, get in the ring. Logan, put your gloves on. Start punching him. Sorry. Punch him. Harder. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.